get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on GoToDobbs.com today. This is the BK and Ferrario Podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's BK and Ferrario. I couldn't go another game in a row pitching five inning, five and die. I just, my least favorite thing in the world. I just, I don't like being that pitcher. I, I mean, that's not a pitcher to me. That's a thrower. Fastball, and he struck him out seven tonight for Adam Wainwright. I just like commanding the ball, you know, pitching, making pitches. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a pitch maker when I'm at my best. And I was out there making some pitches tonight. Third time through the lineup, he strikes out seven and he strikes out the side in the seventh inning. Age is just a number for old Uncle Charlie. You know, we know. We know we had, rightfully so, been taking a lot of heat for not going deeper into the games. And tonight was an important step. You know, it's it's not the end goal. Seven is not the end goal, but it's an important step in the right direction. They lost the game. We'll get to that here in a minute. The story of the game, though, to me, Alex, and the story of the season so far has been the rotation. And Adam Wainwright was excellent last night you heard Jim Edmonds mention it on the broadcast he changed something right around the second inning he wasn't getting full extension early on he ended up getting more extension as he went and the end result seven innings one earned run 10 strikeouts one walk the only real mistake for him was that homer by Josh Bell everything else from start to finish basically was as pristine as you could expect from Adam Wainwright that Alex to me looked like the guy that we saw a year ago as opposed to what we saw early on this year where he was getting nickeled and dimed from start to finish. Oh, 100%. And the part with Wayno is and he was going after guys. Like, he yep. was being aggressive. He was using that curveball off the first pitch if he needed to. He was going down and away in tight if he needed to. He utilized that strike zone. And that is when Adam Wainwright is at his best. And honestly, you know, it's the Michael Jordan mentality. Like he's going to get, he's going to find a way to get pissed off at something or someone, and he's going to go out there and deal. And you heard him saying in that post gamer, he's sick of being the five inning guy. He's sick of people talking about how the pitchers aren't going deep into games. So Adam Wainwright went into that pissed off. And I thought that's exactly what you saw on the mound. Now I don't want to be that guy, but they didn't have Juan Soto in the lineup which takes a big piece away, but... Wow, way to be that guy. I know, I'm sorry. I don't want to be that guy, but uh, it, it was an obs- observation, T-Bone. I'm not taking anything huh. away from Adam Wainwright and his 10 strikeouts and his seven innings with 100 pitches. That was awesome. But when you take that piece out, it makes things a little different. But he got Trey Turner out. He got Kyle Schwarber out. Those were the important pieces. One home run for Adam Wainwright with 100 pitches. I think that was fantastic to see. I tell you what, that... Yeah, it was God, really that is a... such an old guy thing to start with. <laughs> I tell you what. Hey, at least I didn't throw out the negativity about there not being Soto. That, this wasn't negative. It was an observation. Hey, he was, observing. He was really good last night. And after, what was it, maybe the fourth inning, 
I think I think I texted you guys. I said, guys, he's going seven. Uh-huh. And then BK's like, well, he's going to have a complete game. And then Bell Homer and, you know. <laughs> okay. BK tried Enough to BKO him. BK, he BKO'd him, although yeah, he did he, go far. He tried to BKO, but he was efficient. And him making that adjustment, as Jim Evans brought up in the broadcast, I think it was something where he just wasn't extending. And he was able to go in and make that adjustment. Guys, I don't know if we see a lot of other guys in the rotation do that. I don't think Flaherty's going to do that. Carlos is definitely not going to do that. Whoa. What? He's not. He's right. Yeah. See? Whoa. But yeah, he made the adjustment. He's able to get through seven innings. That's what you expect. And the fact of the matter is that he has struggled with the lineup the second time through and then the third time through, but he strikes Whew. out, what was it, like seven, seven guys? Seven of nine the third time through the order. I'll that, be damned. That's yeah. pitching. That was what's up. Hold that beer, Adam Wayne, right? That's Seriously. incredible. Well, the third time through the order is supposed to be where you have the issues. The third time through the order is where he got seven of his ten strikeouts in the game And yesterday. he did a really good job of not just relying on the curveball. I think of his strikeouts, I want to say I think three were fastball, two sinker, two curveball, and then... He had one on all four pitches, yeah. at least. Well, and look at the strikeout scenarios, too. I, I mean, Starlin Castro with runners in scoring position, strikes out. Kyle Schwarber strikes out with runners in scoring position. I believe Robles struck out with runners in scoring position. I mean, between those three guys, there were eight guys left on base when Adam Wainwright dealt to him. So, like, that was the part for me that I'm like, damn, this guy's on fire. And, guys, the top two in the rotation, if you're looking at it as Wayno and Flaherty, those guys are back on track. If you look at their last three starts for each of them, Wayno's last three starts in total, 17 innings, which is solid. You'd like to see a little bit more, but you saw it finally yesterday. He's had 22 base runners allowed in those 17 innings. That's perfectly fine. 23 strikeouts, which is incredible for him. Just five earned runs in those 17 innings. You'll take that from Adam Wainwright every time. Jack Flaherty, 17 innings in his last three starts. He's allowed 16 base runners in those 17 innings. That's really, really good for him. He has 17 strikeouts and three earned runs allowed. So in total, those guys in their last three times through the through the rotation have allowed eight earned runs in 34 innings pitched. That's what you want to see out of those two guys. And if they can consistently give you that, especially if they're giving you a little more length as we move forward here, the rotation's going to be all right. And this is why it wasn't time to panic early on. It was going to take some time for these guys to get up to, to full performance. And I think we're starting to see that. Now comes the test. Carlos Martinez on the mound today. You're going to see KK going up this weekend. You're going to see the back end of the rotation. John Gant getting another opportunity. Yikes. The top two look good. You need a little bit more depth, not just in terms of guys getting deep into games, but also in terms of the three through five in your rotation performing well. In all honesty, though, like we can't sit here and say, oh, gosh, with Carlos Martinez. We can't. I mean, he, he hasn't been stupendous but like he's had one bad inning against what his last start against the Phillies in that basically bad... all three games so far yeah. and those bad innings have come from errors and John Gant gave you what five innings John Gant scares the hell out of me he I'm gave just you say five it. innings of two runs John Gant is basically Carlos Martinez in terms oh. of the results all they've all, been basically the same pitcher this year all three of those guys though that do it differently that are at the back end of your rotation, all three of them have given you a chance to win, and the offense hasn't performed. I mean, am I wrong? I no, don't agree with you. That's fair. It's a fair way to look at it. I, I think Carlos, his performance out of the stretch this year, I would have to look up what the numbers look like, but just based on the eye test, me watching, once base runners get on, he just completely changes the way that he's pitching this year. He looks great when he doesn't have the runners on. 
And then he gets him on and he implodes and it ends up being four innings and he's got an error and he's ducking his head and he's walking around the mound. He's moping. He's frustrated. He ends up hitting a guy and it like we've all watched it. We've all seen what it looks like. And so Carlos has to be better today. And it ain't going to be an easy test because you've got Max Scherzer on the other side of things. I don't know who that is. (laughs) Yeah, he's just okay. One of the best pitchers in the history of the sport. But no big deal. It'll be fine. I'm sure everything's going to be great. We do need to talk before we move forward, though, in this series about what happened last night. What happened last night? Because I thought the story of that game was going to be one manager didn't trust his starter and took him out too early and it killed him and they ended up losing the game as a result. The other manager trusted his starter to get through seven innings and it came back to be the thing that won him the game. Well, boys, then the eighth inning happened and Gallegos, who... I think has earned all trust from his manager. Couldn't get through it. Mike Schilt on the decision to stick with his guy, Giovanni Gallegos. He goes, punch out, punch out. At that point, it's his game. You know, you trust Gio. I mean, if you've got to bring a – Gio's been one of our best guys for three years. So, you know, I can't hit the the proverbial panic button um, because he's got the stuff to get out of. He comes comes in in jams. He's pitching in jams. He's in a jam. And he pretty much was a pitch away, you know, couple pitches away from getting himself out of a jam. Had Alex ready, um, but again, punched out, punch out. He earned the opportunity to, to finish off his business. To, so to set this thing up, set the scene for everybody who may not have seen all of it. Giovanni Gallegos comes in in the eighth inning. Cardinals are leading 2-1 to one when he enters the game. He walks the first batter, Stevenson. He hits Harrison by a pitch on the first pitch that he throws to him. He clearly at this point has no command. Then you've got Trey Turner coming up to the plate. This is probably the biggest threat that you're going to face because Alex said Juan Soto not involved in this one. He ends up singling, scores Stevenson. You've got Harrison on thirds. You've got runners on the corners. Turner steals second for him. Now they've got two runners in scoring position. You've got Josh Bell coming up to the plate. He gets the ground out. That's what you were looking for. You needed it there. You were able to get it. He walks Kyle Schwarber. Do you stick with him? Do you stick with Giovanni Gallegos at that moment where you've got the bases loaded, one out, Castro coming up to the plate? Alex Tanner, what would you have done in that spot with Castro coming up to the plate? I originally last night was thinking, man, you got to get him out and get to Alex Reyes because it's a tie ball game and you can keep it that way and give your team a chance to win. But the more I thought about it, I mean, you intentionally walk Kyle Schorber there because you truly believe that you can get Castro. And at that time, you had what two strikeouts against him so the more i thought about it i think they did the right decision now if this was august september and a playoff spot was on the line then i think you have to go to alex reyes there but because it's the early portion of the season i think they did the right thing because you're giving confidence to a guy who has been awesome for you all year long and he got the strikeout the problem was he got loose with it after that yeah, I agree with you. He got loose after that. I think you made the right decision sticking with him. And I was kind of with you, Alex. Last night, I'm thinking, well, you got to go to Reyes. But then you look at it. He is a ground ball pitcher. Castro, a ground ball hitter. And then that's why you also moved to the five-man infield. She'll go into the laboratory to come up with this in the eighth <laughs> yeah. inning. I I thought it was the right decision when you look back on it. And it's easy to second-guess it now. And I agree. Playoff situation? He may not. He may not. He comes out maybe after the Turner hit because he clearly didn't have his best stuff. I wish he would have just stuck with the fastball against Gomes. Now I don't have the advanced metrics. Maybe he hits the fastball well, but again, stick with the fastball. He didn't have command of the slider, and that's what he went to. I think two or three times in that at bat. So yeah, I get the decision to stick with him. So 
if I was going to make a change, it would have been against Castro. That's where I would have potentially made the switch to go to whether it be Hicks. I don't think he was going to be available because he had already warmed up in the previous inning and they're being super careful with him right now. Or Reyes. That would have been when I did it was against Castro. Once you stuck with him there, I think you were pot committed. You were all in with Giovanni Gallegos and you were saying we are trusting you to get out of this situation. He strikes out Castro. Okay, now I'm definitely sticking with you to go up against Gomes. Throws four straight fastballs. None of them end up in the strike zone. He ends up walking him on four pitches. Boom, there's your inning. That's how the Cardinals lose the game. I know after the game, and I respect it, that Mike Schiltz was able to take some of that blame, take some of the heat off of Giovanni Gallegos. I thought it was a perfectly acceptable way to go about it. You want to find out what your guy can do. You want to find out when you get into this situation in the future, when he doesn't have his command, can he get out of that jam that he created? We've seen Giovanni Gallegos come in when he's got bases loaded. He needs to get two quick outs, and he's done it for him. When you create the jam yourself, can you get out of that? Last night, the answer was no. I bet you if they do it again in the future, they are once again going to stick with him. But if you get into something like this one, two, three more times, and he can't get out of it any of those times, that's when you know as a manager, okay, that's his threshold when he doesn't have it. I'm going to go to somebody else in that spot. And in all honesty, he got through the inning, in my opinion. Now, of course, he gives up that walk, which scores the game-winning run. But the hit to um, Josh Bell, correct? The Trey Turner? That, he grounded out. Yes, I'm sorry. The, the hit to Josh Turner, or Trey Turner, that's what kind of started to, to be the downfall. But the fact that you got Bell to ground out, if that would have turned into a hit that's, that cleared the bases or yep. scored two runs... That's where I'm starting to be like, okay, what's going on here? Why haven't you gone to somebody else? But the fact that he got that ground ball to me was, okay, command was just off a little bit for Gallegos. I'm not concerned about this one. If that hit would have happened, then I think I'm talking a little bit more about blame. What the hell's going on? That had a playoff feel to it. I think that's what was so cool about last night is guys. I was, I was waiting for every pitch the same way that I would in a playoff game. Like it felt important last night and you don't get that very often in game 17 of a major league season you do when it's Padres versus um, Dodgers over the weekend because that is such a massive series for both teams and they have such high aspirations but a random mid-April series between the Cardinals and the Nationals for the eighth inning to feel the way that we did in that one that was intense and that felt like baseball was really back here in St. Louis so I enjoyed the hell out of that game. I know they didn't come out on the winning side of things, but that was a lot of fun, right? We all had fun watching that game last night. That was the first game where I was like, I can actually sit through this one nine innings because the other ones, it's either been a blowout or we've either blown someone out or we've been blown out or the pitching's just hard to watch. That was a game where it was from start to end. I was locked in. It was fun. And then Mike Schilt went with five infielders. And I'm thinking this is borderline fun slash I'm going to pull whatever hair that is on my head out. And luckily it was fun because otherwise that would have gotten really ugly, really fast with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll have plenty more on the Cardinals throughout the day today coming up in 15 minutes. I thought Jamie Rivers had something really interesting about Craig Berube on the fast lane yesterday. So we'll play some of those comments for you, but coming up next, I think Jason Starks, one of the best baseball writers in the country. He's going to join us to talk about how Nolan Arenado has fit in here in St. Louis and what in the world is going on with Corbin birds. 40 strikeouts, zero walks. It's the best start to a season ever from the K to walk ratio for a pitcher. We'll talk to Jason Stark about it all coming up next on 101 ESPN. The 
This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. No one's going to understand what makes St. Louis unique. And I, I, I just see this love fest coming between St. Louis and him and him in St. Louis. Um, when he's going to be told by the Cardinals and then what actually happens, if, if there's anything divergent about those two things, it's just going to be because it's better than what he was told. That was the one and only Jason Stark, one of the best baseball writers in the country when he joined us about a month before the regular season began. And Jason Stark of The Athletic joins us now via the Brownie and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Jason, first of all, thank you, as always, for joining us here on the show. How do you think that the match has uh, has lived up to expectations thus far between Nolan Arenado and the St. Louis Cardinals? Uh, I think it's pretty much as advertised, right? Um like it's early. No one hasn't even done a fraction of the stuff that he's going to do that makes him so much fun to watch. But like he he wasn't walking up to home plate uh, in in Denver and just getting standing ovations just because he exists. <laughs> you know, like, uh, he, he he you know he's going to really respond to this. I don't think there's any doubt about it, and he's still one of my all-time favorite players to watch. Well, one thing he already did, Jason, is be in the middle of a, of a bench-clearing situation in, what, his <laughs> second game of the season and looked like he was ready to take on the entire Cincinnati Reds team. <laughs> Baseball. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to fit in, right? I don't, I don't think he's got anything against the Reds, but... Uh, the Cardinals and the Reds, there's always something, right? Well, Yachty just brings everyone into the fight, yeah. don't they? Well, Jason, I, I, <laughs> Jason, I'm curious, though. Big picture from what you've seen, what, 17 games into the season with Nolan, a part of this Cardinals roster. What have you seen different, similar, new, refreshing, whatever it may be? What have you seen about this Cardinals team? I mean, you're talking about uh, the Cardinals in general, right? Yeah. I, I, You know, I, wouldn't everybody have thought that they – the pitching would have been better than this, and the offense wouldn't have been as good as this. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just, baseball in April can get all mixed up. Um, you know, the, the the Cardinals leading the league in homers is not a thing I would have predicted. But us either, Jason. I, 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 you know, I I don't know. I, this is what I love the most about baseball is it is the least predictable game ever invented, and stuff will even out. But it's it's fun to just try to figure out what's real and what's not right now. It's really interesting because I look around the division and you've got the Brewers whose pitching has been unbelievable so far this season, but they're hitting 210 as a team. The Cubs pitching has been fine, but they're hitting 190 as a team. And so as I look around the division, it almost makes me feel a little bit better about the Cardinals in some ways because all of this almost feels like it's unsustainable. The entire division? Well, the Pirates, they're sustainable. Well, that's, fair. <laughs> that's fair. But, you know, I, I, I do really like the Brewers. Um, I mean, if they're going to pitch like this, I don't, I don't know that that's doable, but if they're going to pitch like this, uh, you, you have to think at some point they'll get something out of Chris and Yelich, you know, and uh, that, that's a dangerous team. Uh, the Reds aren't going to score 10 runs every home game all year. I'm pretty sure that's not sustainable. Um, I, I think this division is not that different than we envisioned it going into the season. It, 
it's not going to take 95 wins to win this thing. So to be around 500 like the Cardinals have been, I don't think that's a bad place to be at all. No, I don't disagree with you at all, Jason. You know, the the part when you look at the Cardinals, who's been a surprise this season, I mean, we all knew what Nolan Arenado was going to bring. The same with Paul Goldschmidt. I'd argue Yadier Molina is a little bit surprising. But Tommy Edmond, Jason, I'm curious your thoughts, because this is a guy who, you know, a lot of people weren't happy that the Cardinals moved on from Colton Wong, but he is profiled as a perfect leadoff man for this team. And now he's been like a super utility player. Yeah, he's a fun player. You know, um, and he's been incredibly productive. The bats have been great. You know, they were in Philly over the weekend, so I had a chance to watch him quite a bit. And just the quality of the bats um, added with the the versatility. Um, he he's got a chance to be a super valuable part of this, don't you think? I do. And Jason, we talked about it a little bit yesterday and we kind of made the comp. I I don't know that he can be this, but the role at least that he's playing thus far is kind of what Ben Zobrist was for the Rays early on in his tenure when he hit his prime kind of like 09 to 2014 range. Can Tommy Edmond be maybe 80% of that for the Cardinals in your mind? 80% of vintage Ben Zobrist? Yeah. That would that would work. <laughs> um, you know, ben, like Ben Zobris was really a. Uh, I mean, he wasn't just a two position guy. He, you know, you could put him at four or five positions, and he could play all of them at a high level and produce at all of them. Um, if if Tommy Edmond can be a, just a fraction of that and just play two positions at a high level and produce. You know, that's kind of the way teams are built right now, that when you find players like that who are like having (laughs) – it's almost like they clone themselves, you know, and one guy actually profiles as multiple guys um, because of the way they can fit on a given day. Um, With with long bullpens and short benches – those are the most valuable players in today's game. Jason, with that being said, what does a guy like Tommy Edmond do to a lineup that the Cardinals have if he's one of the top leadoff men in Major League Baseball? I mean, a lot of people talk about Dylan Carlson, Paul DeYoung starting to heat up. We've already mentioned Arenado and Goldschmidt. Uh, what does this lineup look like if, if Tommy Edmond is the Tommy Edmond we've seen in the first 17 games of the season? Well, I mean, it, it really does cause you to reevaluate everything because... Um, if you're going to have guys on base when Nolan comes up and Paul Goldschmidt comes up and, hey, Yachty, the way he's swinging it now, um, this is going to be a way better offense than we would have envisioned. We're talking to Jason Stark, senior baseball writer for The Athletic. He's joining us here on 101 ESPN. Jason, I mentioned Corbin Burns, and, I mean, the start to the season that he has had is is literally historic. 40 strikeouts so far this year. He has yet to walk a batter, and that's now the record for the most strikeouts to start a season without a walk by a starting pitcher. Uh, Basically, the last time that we saw anything like this was Adam Wainwright back in 2013. Jason, did you see this kind of a start coming from Corbin Burns? Did people around the league see him as being this caliber of a pitcher? Uh, you know, I was a Cy Young voter last year in the National League, and I, you know, I thought long and hard about where to place him because 
he did show some of this last year. Uh, not quite this. He didn't. He didn't pitch enough to qualify for the ERA title, so he was really hard to rank. But he was awesome um, in the in the sample size that we had, and he's even better this year. Um, I mean, first of forty strikeouts and no walks. Uh, we haven't like no pitcher has done that over any span of four starts since 1900. No pitcher. I love Jack Flaherty, but his last 40 strikeouts have come with 18 walks. Think about 40 and zero. That's basically Kurt Schilling. So that, that's incredible. But like, watch it. Um, he already had kind of a Mariano-esque cutter, but now it's 96 to 98 miles an hour. Yeah, left-handed hitters have no shot at that thing. Now, uh, he's he's ditched the four seamer. Uh, he's got that two seamer now at at ninety eight ninety nine. That is moving in the exact opposite direction as the cutter, only out of the same tunnel. Uh, it's, you know he's really refined that curveball. That's an unhittable pitch. The changeup he's he's starting to show that, and that's a really difficult pitch uh, at ninety. And he's filling up the strike zone because he knows he's unhittable. In the zone, so he has no fear of challenging with any pitch, and that's how you get to forty strikeouts and no walks. Well, that leads us to the conversation that I think a lot of people are having about baseball right now, Jason. And I'm curious where you fall on this. We've heard people discuss moving the pitching mound back to, I guess, uh, alter the game a little bit away from what Corbin Burns is doing. What are your thoughts on that? You know, people talk about the three true outcomes. Is really the one true outcome. <laughs> that's devouring baseball, and that's the strikeout rate. You know, we're now at a 25% strikeout rate. One out of every four plate appearances is ending in a strikeout. The pitchers are just too good. Um, they throw harder than pitchers have ever thrown at any point in history, uh, and they have more information than pitchers have any have had at any point in history. And there are literally at-bats where the greatest hitters on earth have no chance. And so it, the reason to think about moving back the mound is, is that the game you want? <laughs> I don't think it is. You know, we have tremendous athletes and tremendous hitters who have no chance against these pitchers. And it's worth examining the question, how can you possibly counteract the effects of velocity? And I don't know any good answer to that except experimenting with moving the mound back slightly. You know, two years ago, the Atlantic League was going to move it back two feet. That felt like too much, at least at least as a first step. And pitchers were saying, no, I'm not signing with your league. So they never did it. But a foot is a distance that we've actually had studied, you know, because Dr. James Andrews, American Sports Medicine Institute did a study of this with 26 college pitchers, and they didn't see any injury risk. So it's worth seeing what happens in the Atlantic League. I don't know if it's a, but I think baseball has to look at alternatives. Or is the strikeout rate going to get to 30%, 40%? Like, then you don't have a sport. 
Jason, I think it's really interesting what the Atlantic League is doing, not just with that, with the possibility of moving back the mound a foot, but also they're doing the double hook DH rule. They're trying out expanded bases like they're they're trying basically everything to see what we can do to make this sport more entertaining, more watchable for the fans. I know one thing that I love about your writing is that you talk to people within the game to find out what their opinions are on all of these different things. And from your experience talking with those people, Jason, both in and around the sport, how open are they to some of these ideas? <laughs> uh, it depends who you're talking about. But, <laughs> look, I have to talk about the double hook because Please. there are, believe it or not, there are people in the sport who refer this, to this as the Jason Stark rule. <laughs> and I, I did not invent the I did not invent the rule uh, it's been kicked around for a few years but I probably have done more to publicize it than anybody and I did name it the double hook was my name I thought of it in the middle of the night one night uh, as I was writing a piece about this it was and it's so bizarre that somebody is actually listening to me I'm not used to that uh, it never happened to me in my life including in my house <laughs> so um I've really enjoyed writing about this and talking about this rule, and you know one of the biggest fans of it, don't you, is Adam Wainwright. He loves this thing. The only thing he doesn't love about it is that the starting pitcher would never get the hit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's a, that is a uh, he does subtract points for that. Mm-hmm. But if you know, if we're going to look for something that can incentivize the starting pitcher staying in the game longer, and by doing that, incentivize teams to just look at starting pitching in general differently, then this might be it because you need to construct your roster differently. You're going to manage the game differently. It makes decision-making totally different because the when the starting pitcher leaves the game, the DH leaves the game. Um, it's a really interesting rule the more you think about it. But like with everything in baseball and the world now, people are so divided about this rule and every rule change. But you have to try stuff, or how will you ever know? That, that's kind of the way I look at it. He's Jason Stark. You can find his work over on The Athletic. I was reading his piece this morning on can the Blue Jays be baseball's next behemoth. It's really good stuff. And the way that baseball is is changing right now with all of these, I guess I'll call them super teams. It's interesting to see if uh, the Blue Jays could be the next one. Jason, we always appreciate the time, man. Thank you so much for joining us today. All the best, and we'll talk with you again soon. Enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much. Absolutely. That's Jason Stark joining us here on 101 ESPN. So basically the way that the double hook rule that he was talking about would work is you get the DH for as long as your starting pitcher is in the game. And then whenever you take your starting pitcher out, you lose the DH, right, Tanner? Am I explaining that correct? that's right. So the way that it would work for the Cardinals, for instance, right, last night, if you keep Adam Wainwright in the game through seven, you end up getting the DH through those full seven. There's probably Carpenter. Meanwhile, for Washington, they would have taken out, they would have had something else to think about when they took out Patrick Corbin, right? So maybe instead of taking him out of that spot, you keep him in to get your DH another spot in the lineup. And then in the eighth inning, you turn things over to your bullpen, you lose your DH, but you might not see your your pitcher slot, quote unquote, come up the rest of the game. It's a really intriguing idea that would definitely promote keeping your pitcher in longer, 
something like the World Series last year with the Rays. I don't think you would see something like that nearly as often. Those are the changes I think that Major League Baseball needs to do because it creates excitement, but on top of it, it also puts the strategy into the game. Rather than just having the DH and, you know, you can kind of ease your way through nine innings, there's some, there's some movement that a manager is going to have to utilize at some point in the game. So I think that has to happen in baseball because it brings back the intrigue, in my opinion. And think about where some of these teams put their DH. Yeah. Nelson Cruz hits like third for the Minnesota some Twins. Some people would put the DH at the leadoff spot, depending on yeah. who, who who they're utilizing there. So it, you're looking at a lineup where you could get to your top two hitters, and then because you've pulled your starter... Boom, we've got the pitcher spot. And now double switches come back into play, right? So if you're a National League fan, this is kind of the happy medium of the late innings still become super intriguing with the managerial decisions, and it almost becomes even more important as to what you do with your starting pitcher in those spots. But you also have the DH for the first five, six, seven-plus innings, potentially, depending on what your starter does. I think it's a really good idea And if you're trying to get more offense in the sport, which baseball is trying to do, while also keeping the traditionalists happy with the way that the game is played, I think this is probably as close as you're going to get to some sort of a consolation for what other people would like to see. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I I like it, and I think it even works out better because now we have 26-man rosters. If there was only 25-man rosters and you had one less bullpen arm— then it's a little more tougher, I think, at least. And it means the Cardinals can go sign J.D. Martinez. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, Craig Berube is not the problem. And Jamie Rivers had some great opinions what? as to why Craig Berube is not the problem. We'll let you hear from him coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. You know, the way I look at it and, the, and how I explain to the team is that we control our own destiny, really. I mean, we got we, if we do what we're supposed to do and, and win our games, we'll be in good shape. So, And that's how we kind of break it down. And, uh, you know, we got to really just, again, it's just a, a one game at a time focus. That's what you got to do. Um, we've got to look at Thursday against Colorado, and that's it. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. That was Craig Berube talking yesterday on the Fast Lane about how the Blues control their own destiny. He's right. I know everybody's saying that the Blues are out of the playoffs right now. It's not totally true. The Blues, by points percentage, are technically in the fourth spot. Everyone but you saying that, right? What do you mean? Like everyone is saying that the Blues are out of it, but you, you're still holding hope. Let me clarify. Some people are saying that the Blues would be out of the playoffs if the season ended today. By points percentage, they're in. <laughs> um, so, uh, Mr. Positivity <laughs> over go. here on the Blues. BK, go. as all of you guys know. Yeah, but in all seriousness, they do. They absolutely mm-hmm. do control their own destiny. Now, it's going to be hard. But they control their own destiny. And, and real quick, I'll say this. We are getting closer to a point where NHL might have to consider going to the point percentage system. Absolutely. Because if they get a, if they get another team that went through the Vancouver Canucks situation, which I don't know what's going on in Colorado. Apparently, Rantanen was not positive. He just had contact tracing. But if they start to miss more games, I mean, you can't go this deep into the offseason with the expansion draft starting up. Yeah, they're going to have to at some point pull the plug the same way baseball did last year, right? Where the Cardinals ended up not playing the full 60. They played 58. And there's got to be an understanding at the end of, hey, if we need to play these games, maybe we'll find a way. But like the Cardinals we saw last year, you didn't need them. So it wouldn't have made a difference. And that's probably, I think, what you're going to get to eventually in the NHL. 
But this has not been the season that we expected from the Blues. Let's be honest. We thought that the Blues were going to be where Minnesota is right now, where they're 15 points ahead of the fourth place team in the division. And so there has been some criticism of Craig Berube, the Blues head coach. Now, we all agree on this show those are unfounded. Craig Berube is not the problem for the Blues right now. Jamie Rivers is as connected as anybody that you'll ever know when it comes to the Blues, hockey in general. And yesterday, I thought on the fast lane, he had some really, really, really great comments about why Craig Berube is not the problem for the St. Louis Blues. In talking to the players and and, and people surrounding the team, the thought of, of moving on from Craig Berube is so far out in, in Nowhereville. Nobody is talking about that. And that's why you haven't really seen some of the mainstream media here even dabble their toes in it because I think Doug Armstrong and everybody has definitely made the you know the, the suggestion that you would be crazy to do that and I think Chief is the right guy for the job I think what he's saying is nothing different than what he's done before and at the end of the day he keeps telling all of us that he's confident in his team so as much as he's kicking them in the Liberty Bells at times with some of the things he's saying He's still dragging that team into battle and trying to get them to compete. A hundred percent. I mean, look, I'm not as connected as Jamie Rivers, but in the past talking with guys in that locker room, they love everything about Craig Berube. Like they have bought into this man and it's not just, oh, they bought into him for half of a season and won the cup. No, they've bought into him every season. And I, I have been plastered with this question in post in post games throughout the year. My response to it is who are you hiring? That's making a difference. Like, who is out there that you can say, oh, he's going to get this team in shape? Because Gerard Gallant is not the answer. Mike Babcock is not the answer. No. The guy who took a team from worst to first is the answer. The guy who has connections with these minor league players like Ivan Barbashev and Mackenzie McEachern and Sammy Blay, he's the answer. The guy who Braden Shen will listen to and go into battle with, even if he's calling him out. The guy who got Vladimir Tarasenko to play a physical brand of hockey in that postseason run. That's the guy that you need to rally around. And at this point, and I've said it so many times, and I know Jamie has as well, this is on the players more than it's on the coach. And as much as Craig Berube said the destiny is in their own hands, the destiny is in the players' hands. Because at some point, I compared it to your golf game. And I don't know if people play golf. But as much as you go out to the golf course and you just have a bad round, You can blame the clubs all you want, but at some point you have to recognize that you're the problem and you need help. So Craig Ruby, we can sit here and say, well, Craig's not getting them to buy in. He's not getting them to to perform on the power play. He's not getting them to play the physical brand of hockey. No, he's doing everything he's supposed to do. At some point, you got to say, guys, I've given you the platform. Go out and perform. They do it in the first. They do it in the third. It's just a matter of doing it for a full 60 minutes. And that's why from the 573, guys, all the injuries have hurt the chemistry this year. Nonsense. Nonsense. There was some truth to that at one point. Absolutely. No doubt about it. But as as Alex just said, they look great for 40 minutes a game. For 40 minutes a game, they look exactly like the team that I thought that they were going to be this year. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's 20 minutes where they forget how to play the game of hockey. And they look like if I was going to go out there and play hockey today. Now, that would look really, really, really bad. And there have been times this year. Hey, you you saved that woof. And that is exactly how the Blues look sometimes this year. Where it's like, wait, you guys are so skilled and so talented. And we see the spurts. We see the flashes of things coming together and looking like the Blues of old. 
And for whatever reason, it's just it's not sustained 60 minute periods of the Blues playing that way. And one thing is you just heard from Jamie Rivers, who said they get kicked in the Liberty Bells every once in a while. One thing that Craig Berube has said repeatedly he said he's called the team soft at times in his postgame press conference. He said that this team is fragile. He just did that this week. Well, David Perron was on the morning show today because we've also received text saying, hey, when he does that, it ends up that's going to wear on the team. How long can you do that? Blah, blah, blah. Well, David Perron, I think, is a pretty good indicator of where the team is at. He was on with the morning show earlier today, and he responded to Craig Berube calling the team fragile. Uh, I think fragile for, for me, it means that we come out with the game with the right mindset, with the right attitude. We play the right way in the first period, the last, those last two games. And we just don't find a way to sustain it in, in the second period. So we just we just break a little too easily. And it's really not um, they prepare us right because we come out the right way. We, we do the things they need to do. And we expect, obviously, the other team to push in the second. We know we just got to find a way to, to meet that and, and hopefully exceed that. You know where, where he's coming from with that fragile comment. And first of all, Joey and I get into this tonight on, on This Week in Hockey because I, I asked Joe, I said, from a player's perspective, like, does that wear on guys? And Joey blatantly said, guys don't pay attention to that. Guys don't hear what Craig Bruby is saying post game. Once the game's over, they're done with it. you got to change your mind and move to the next game. But what Perron is talking about there, and it's a great quote, go look at that Arizona Coyotes game. The fragility comes in that first two minutes of the second period. Yep. You let that goal go in at even strength, and then things start to downfall. You take a penalty, they score a power play goal, they then score a goal four minutes into the third period. That's the fragility. That's what Craig Berube is basically calling out what he's seeing on the ice. Heads dip. When you see guys after they miss a goal and their head goes backwards, or when the goal gets past Jordan Bennington and guys slowly skate to the bench, that's the fragility. That's not a coach calling out his players. That's a coach telling the media exactly what the players are saying in the locker room and if you want some numbers to place to what alex is just saying there the blues in their last 10 games have been outscored in the second period by a combined score of 16 to 5 three of those five goals that they themselves have scored in the second period came in their 9 to 1 outburst against the wild so excluding that wild outlier literally and figuratively they have been outscored 16 to 2 in the second period in nine of their last 10 games that's just totally unacceptable, and it's happening the same way every time you're just waiting for the other shooter drop. When does the goal goes in for the op- opposition in the second period? And when it does, you're waiting for the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth because it seemingly goes that way every single time for this Blues team. Right. They've got to be better in the second period. Real quick from the 3-1-4. Look, I'd love to see. Uh, I don't want to see him go. I think he's a perfect coach for the Blues, but we need to stop bringing up what he did in the second half of that cup run. If you're going to bring up the past, then you also have to bring up not being able to get his team to compete in the bubble. Again, that's not Craig Berube. A bubble is an anomaly. Like, look at all of the teams that went into that and didn't have success. Right. Like the Dallas Stars went into that, not supposed to be making the playoffs and they finally bought in. The bubble was basically a scenario of a group of guys and whoever was going to be able to overcome that adversity was going to have success. If that regular season played out and COVID didn't happen, I truly believe we're probably talking about the Blues making another cup run because Craig Berube had the confidence flowing. That bubble or the bubble happened after three months of no hockey, two weeks of training camp and then the team not being able to get ready for it. The bubble has nothing to do with that team's effort. If you're going to talk about past, talk about the 2019 season where they were the best in their division. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. We'll get to some questions and answers coming up next. I also want to include in questions and answers today. All right, Alex, so it's not the coach. We can all agree it's not Craig Berube. That's not the problem for the Blues. 
What are the three things that they're missing right now? Then what are the things they need to do this off season? Because I, I don't think this team's going to win a cup. Let's, let's be honest. What are the three things that this team needs to do to get back to being in cup contention? We'll get into that. Here's some of your questions. We'll give you some answers coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Comfort service tax line coming up in about 10 minutes or so. The Cardinals young outfielders are starting to produce at a level that I think might end the let carp cook movement, boys. So we'll, get into, that. we'll get into it. Oh we'll God. talk about T-bone, it. Cue up the celebration music. That's coming up in 10 minutes. But we did ask this question on the other side. So the blues right now don't look like a cup contender to me. I would agree with that. Fair. Yeah, okay. I would agree with that statement. Don't are, open what? your mouth, T-Bone. You're what? catching flies over there. What are the three things, Alex? I'll go to my hockey expert here. What are the three things that need to change? Whether it be three players that need to be added or tangible pieces, intangible, whatever it is. What are the three things that need to change for the Blues to get back to cup contention next well, year? Well, I'll, I'll give you two roster and then one kind of outside the realm of things. I thought about this last night when you gave it to me. So the first thing they need, and I'm sure everyone would agree with this, they need size on the blue line. So I went and looked at the top four teams in each division right now. The Blues have four guys that are above six foot. Six foot or above, the Blues have four guys. Of the top four teams in each division right now, all of those teams, five of their six starting defensemen are six foot one and above. So size still matters in front of your goaltender. So size I, always I, matters. I, it's very true. That is what I've heard, Tanner. So make, make sure you mark that one down. Size matters. The Blues are going to need a guy that can be on that ice, kind of matching what Pareko and Scandella bring. Girth. Girth, size, stick length. That's what you need on your in your own zone. So that's the first thing I'm looking for in the offseason. The second thing is you need a consistent scoring threat on the wing that plays Baruby's system. I'm looking around at different guys, and, and I, we all can agree Jaden Schwartz plays Baruby's system. He's just not a consistent scoring threat. Jeremy talked about this yesterday. I'm looking at guys, and I know this is outlandish because you're not going to be able to make it work, but I look at guys... Sidney Crosby. Sidney Crosby, of course. No, I look at guys like Matthew Kachuk who go to the front of the net, Brady Kachuk who go to the front of the net, guys who are unafraid to put themselves in, in danger to get those dirty goals, bounce off the feet, the butt, whatever they need to do. You need one of those guys on the wing. So that's something that if I'm Doug Armstrong, I'm looking at this offseason to go out there and add to this team. The third thing, and this is kind of non-roster related, the Blues need a normal training camp in preseason. Because I think what happened this year, and I know COVID is not the reason that things have gone well or injuries, but I do think that provides a team to get to know the system a little bit more. It's what we saw with Justin Falk. Now, I know he didn't have a normal training camp this year. He had one last season before COVID hit. But I think if you get that that length of time at the beginning of the season to work through the system, that's going to benefit the team. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line from the 618. I think they put it perfectly. Girth, size, stick length, damn, size does matter, especially for the Blues. Especially Absolutely. for the Blues. So the three things to sum this up from Alex. Size on the blue line, a winger who fits Baruby's 
and a normal training camp and preseason. That's the three things that I'd be wanting for this upcoming year. You get those three things, Blues are going cup, back to the damn cup. Cup contenders, baby. Cup contenders, T-Bone. Oh, I'm excited now. Damn With right. Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, the Cardinals might be running out of time for the Let Carp Cook experiment. We'll talk about it. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Here's your fly ball. All you got to do right there. Out to left. Schwarber with the catch. Carlson tagging up from third. And he will score. And the Cardinals have a 2-1 lead on the RBI by Austin Dean. That was Austin Dean last night making a productive out for the Cardinals. He's been pretty darn good so far this year for the Cardinals. You can't get the Deaninator out. Credit where it's due. No, Austin we Dean. We didn't agree to that name. Hold on, guys. I'm about to say something oh. that I never thought I would say. Oh, Oof. Tanner, quiet. Austin Dean has been what I thought John Nagowski was going to be for the Cardinals. <gasps> Ooh, did that hurt? He's making productive outs. He's taking his walks. He has seven RBI on the season. He's been a really productive player for the Cardinals. Did that hurt to say? It hurt really bad. And the reason why I'm bringing up Austin Dean is because we've talked so much about Dylan Carlson. I think he should be batting cleanup right now. He has the second best OPS on the team. You've got Justin Williams, who's really come along of late, especially offensively. Now Austin Dean is working his way into the mix. Harrison Bader is about two weeks uh, away from being back in the lineup. Tyler O'Neill, this is the last game they're going to play without him on the roster. You've got Tommy Edmond, who's been working his way into the outfield mix. Suddenly... The outfield is starting to look a little more crowded than it once did. And so I think it deserves to be asked with Matt Carpenter in the lineup today. Are we running in to the end of the road for the let carp cook campaign? Hold on. No, 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 no. Tanner, that's not nice. It's not a celebration. This is the wrong song. I think this is it. I think this is it because I never thought I would come to the point where you would say this. I'm not saying it's over. I don't think it's over just yet. He's Damn. in the lineup today. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I found it. I founded this movement. It's over. What do you mean it's I over? I founded this movement. It's what over. What do you mean it's over? It's time He's to still hitting hard. the ball hard. I don't care. Yeah. Matt Carpenter still has a place on this Dean's team. Dean's doing it. Well, I know he's got oh, a place yeah, on the team. I've never said that he doesn't have a place on this team. He definitely has a place on this team. He's good for one hit in a game. No, That's a bench uh, player. No, he is? No, He's good for a hit every no, He's got three hits. One of them. A He's got that. Uh, he does have the butt single. He does have the home run, and he also has a hit into the right field. That so sounds, you, you, sounds like a great bench. <laughs> Are we re- in all seriousness? Is the outfield making it tougher to justify getting my guy Carpenter into the it's lineup over. now? It, it, yeah, I, it's over. I, I mean, honestly, Austin Dean should be in the lineup tonight. Today, tonight, Great. today. It's afternoon. Today. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, afternoon. An, it's in between. He should be in the lineup. I mean, look, I understand he's not getting a lot of hits like Matt Carpenter is. I mean, he's got five hits on the season, and four of those came intensively for for you. And he's coming off of a game where he had a hit. He went one for two. I mean, if we're going to ride the hot hand, yeah. then yeah, why, you play, right? Yeah. I mean, then why wouldn't Austin Dean be in this lineup? I'm not saying to put the guy batting second for you, but why wouldn't he be hitting seventh? With Justin Williams hitting eighth, two guys who are hitting and making contact rather than the guy who, yeah, he's making hard contact, but he's also striking out. And not only did he have the hit last night, good situational hitting, too. Yeah. That sack fly that we played in the re- rejoin here, 
that was a moment where you had to get the ball in the air. You had to score that run, and it was the go-ahead run at the time. And what does he do? He takes a, I think, I believe it was a fastball low and in, and he hits it in the left field deep enough for the Carlson to come in and score. That's good situational hitting. Carp's in that spot. I'll be honest. I don't know if we get that. I, I just don't think we should be having him hit six for you right now. Who, Carpenter? Yeah. No, no, he definitely shouldn't be hitting six for you. I, I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I, I, if I'm going to have somebody hitting six, it's going to be Justin Williams or Austin Dean right now. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. Guys, they're facing Max Scherzer today. It doesn't matter who's in the lineup. Nobody is getting a hit. They're playing against Max Scherzer. He's going to dominate. That may be true. I get it. And the, the thing about Matt Carpenter right now is you're going up against a righty, and these are the situations where you're expecting for him to play. You're going up against a righty again on Friday. He's probably going to be in the lineup on Friday. Then Saturday, you go up against a lefty. He's not going to be out there for that game. So... He will play in two of the next three. That might be it. That might be it for the here and now for Matt Carpenter. Because after that, Tyler O'Neill is back. You're going up against a lefty on Saturday. Does Tyler O'Neill win his job back? Does he end up back in left field and you go with Dylan Carlson and center and Justin Williams and right? Maybe. Maybe that's what it looks like for the foreseeable future with Tommy Edmond at second. You're much better defensively that way. Your pitching is starting to get back on track. Maybe you do go with kind of more of your your best defensive alignment at a very minimum, and I don't think you lose anything offensively. Going from Matt Carpenter, it makes me sad to say this, but you're going from Matt Carpenter to Tyler O'Neill. Tyler O'Neill hits the ball hard when he makes contact. He strikes out too much. That's basically the Matt Carpenter profile right now, and unfortunately. You need to find out with Tyler O'Neill and you know save the text messages of you already know what Tyler O'Neill is. Yeah, we might, but the Cardinals front office apparently doesn't. So until they go out there and say we're making a move for an everyday outfielder because Tyler O'Neill is not the answer, you got to play him. As mu- again, this has nothing to do with shots personally at Matt Carpenter. The man has done incredible things for the Cardinals. He's a great Cardinals player. He does have a role on this team despite popular belief. Yeah. I just don't think it's an everyday player in the lineup. So we've given our opinions. We think that it is getting close to the end of the let Carp Cook movement. Do we think that Mike Schilt believes that? Because that's the only thing that really matters, right? Like We can all sit here and say, hey, you've got options now, and those options look a little better, more appealing than what Matt Carpenter brings to the table. Do you think Mike Schilt believes that? Because at the end of the day, he's the one that's actually putting together the lineup, and he's batting Matt Carpenter sixth today. I would have, I would never put him there right now. No, no chance. And Matt, and yet, the manager is. So do you guys think that he's viewing this the same way we do? Because I don't. I don't either. No. There's no way. I'm, I mean, we all heard the Bountiful Harvest comment and celebrate his moments. I mean, no. Mike Schilta, I think, is going to stick with his veteran as long as he can. Not only that, but I I do believe that if you were to look at the lineup from last night and you saw what Dean did, and I get it, it was against a left-handed pitcher, but I think his home run was off a righty when he hit it. And again, it was a blowout, and all his hits have come in two games. But if you're going to do the you hit, you play, I'm sorry, Dean's been hitting, and he looks pretty comfortable to play. He looks okay out in left field. I I think if if Mike Schultz really believed that the let Carp Cook movement was done, we would not see Carpenter in the lineup today, especially against a hard thrower and an elite starter in Max Scherzer. From the 636, he's called the dinosaur now, Tanner. So get the on board. Dinosaur? The dinosaur? The dinosaur. We got to do better than that. What are you talking about? It's like the dinosaur. We got to do better He said the Deninator. That's better. Get Thank the you. hell Thank out of here. That's, That's not even a play on words. It doesn't even sound like the Terminator. Well, it's uh, or the the detonator. 
Ooh. The the denonator? The detonator, because it's going to blow up sooner or later. <laughs> okay. So, um, speaking of blowing up, this offense oh. has had uh, some blow-ups this year, both in the positive and in the negative direction, and last night was more of the latter. Did you guys see ESPN put together their rankings of the top 10 lineups in baseball so far this season? I was probably feeding my baby at the time. So, where would you guess the Cardinals rank among the top they ranked the top six. So the Cardinals are in the top six? They ranked them in the top six lineups in all of baseball so uh, far this season. Are they taking this? So they're taking this season into consideration. Yeah, this is just based um, on the season. Well, you know the Dodgers and Padres are probably one, two. The Dodgers are three. What the Padres the are not in the top six. What the hell? The Red Sox, are they in the top six? They're two. Okay. There's be, another team oh, in the Division One. Brewers, no the Reds. Reds. Sorry, no, the Reds. Reds are number one. I would say the Cardinals are probably fifth. I I would like to think sixth. The Cardinals are fifth. Ding, so ding, you've ding, got ding, ding. top five: the Reds, the Red Sox, Dodgers, the Angels, and then the Cardinals come in at fifth. The Braves come in at number six. Here is what Dave Schoenfeld of ESPN wrote about the Cardinals offense. He said a couple of big games against the Nationals have helped that runs per game average, even though the Cardinals are hitting just 228 as a team. After ranking last in the home run rate last year and 24th in 2019, they are the surprise early leaders in all of baseball in 2021 with 25 homers in their first 16 games. The long-term key remains for the Cardinals what they will get from the mix-and-match outfield. I need more time before truly believing that this is going to be a long-term top-10 lineup. Are the Braves in this? Because oh, Okay, I was going to say, because if the Cardinals are in this, the Braves have to be in this. I think DeYoung is going to be a swing factor for that. Too. Oh, yeah. He I, mentioned, I agree. You, you quoted him, and he just talks about the outfield, but I think DeYoung, to me, DeYoung is more of the question mark than what the outfield is. By the way, that was based on their runs per game. Cardinals are fifth in baseball right now in runs per game. Now, obviously, that is skewed because the runs per game average is held up exponentially by like three outings where they were awesome, awesome offensively. And that's where those home runs come in. Like When you are hitting as many homers as the Cardinals have so far this year, you're leading baseball in that category. You're going to have some big time games where you score 12, 13, 14 runs. But when you rely on the long ball the way that they have, Tanner, your favorite thing. They've got that slugging, slugging right? Slugging, baby. You also end up having some games like last night where you don't look very good at the plate. You end up striking out too often. You don't come through with runners in scoring position. You score two runs despite the fact that your starting pitcher gave you a really great outing. You end up losing three to two. This is where we are with the Cardinals right now. Well, boys, we got the name. The Dean Machine. Oh, I like that. The Dean Machine. That's pretty good. We That's need, pretty we need good. like a sounder because he has been knighted the Dean Machine. What about Dynamite? No. No, it's no. dumb. Dean Machine. Sorry, yeah, text line. Dean mean Machine Dean? is a winner. Mean Dean Machine? That's too long. Too long. Yeah, you can't. Okay. Like, mean Dean. Mean well, Dean would be good, but I like the Dean Machine more. Like Mean Joe Green? Yeah, no, mean we Dean? get it. No, we get it. It's just too much. Okay. <laughs> 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Let's play a game of more likely to happen coming up next, including more likely to happen. Matt Carpenter gets a start in the postseason or Austin Dean gets a start in the postseason. We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. I'm Brandon. 
Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for more likely to happen. Let's start with the one that I teased before the break, guys. More likely to start for the Cardinals in the playoffs this year. Austin Dean or Matt Carpenter? More likely to start a game for the Cardinals in the playoffs. Dean, the Deaninator, or no, Carp, the Carpenter? No, we decided... That we signed it was the Dean machine. The I'm Dean not, machine. I'm always going to remember Dean and Ader, though. That's terrible. That's We've already decided one. he was knighted the Dean machine. I don't right. know with Carpenter. He was knighted? Yeah, we knighted Damn. him. Okay. Sir Dean machine. Um, <laughs> Boy, I'm not going to like saying this. Say it. Say it. <laughs> Say it. I think it's going to be Matt Carpenter. Let Carp cook. No, cook Carp. I just think by that time, we're talking the outfielders not performing and if that's the case Tommy Edmonds going to shift to the outfield before Austin Dean goes to the outfield All right now Austin Dean feels like a Brad Miller situation and I think you ride the hot hand I don't see that sustained over a full season Matt Carpenter's 18 million dollars sustains over a full season so I, I, I don't like it I'd like to pull a BK and ride the fence but I'll say Matt Carpenter I, I agree with you. It's more likely Matt Carpenter will have a start in the postseason. But, guys, I'm just going to be honest. If these are your two options to start in the postseason. I don't think we're in the postseason. You had, uh, I don't know about that, but you had a failed trade deadline. Well, that's why I'm coming up with this next one. And, by the way, the correct answer is Matt Carpenter because of the manager for this team. Whoa. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for more likely to happen. More likely the Cardinals trade for a starting pitcher or an outfielder at the trade deadline. Starting, starting pitcher or an outfielder. Starting pitcher for me because... I think you can there's a lot of starting pitchers that you can go out and make a push for it's going to be hard for you to go find an outfielder that's going to be an everyday outfielder and in my opinion it'll be tough to trade for one there's a couple of names out there but I think there's going to be more names available that will be depth pitching rather than an outfielder so I'll say pitching I agree. I think it's going to be pitching. I think you need a third starter. I think if Wayno can continue what he did last night in his last couple starts, Flaherty's Flaherty. I don't have faith in KK Michaelis or Martinez or Gantor Ponce or Oviedo as being guys that could start. Pitchers that you don't like. Yeah, geez. You just named the whole team. They're they're good if I need them in the regular season, but when it comes time to crunch time, I need a starter to give me some good innings in the postseason. I don't trust those guys. So I would rather go get another starter. I think the answer is an outfielder. I really do, guys. I think that the Cardinals are much more likely to trade for an outfielder than a starter. The only way I think they deal for a starter is if it's a guy on an expiring deal. I don't think they want to get in a situation where they're potentially blocking some of their young starters. I think we are about to see next year. We're going to talk about the rotation the way that we talked about the outfield this year, where it's time. It's time to give them the runway. Let's see what Alex Reyes can do. Let's see what Johan Oviedo can do. Let's find out if Thompson is ready to go in the big leagues as a starter. I don't know if it'll be to start the year, but at some point we should we should see next year Matthew Libertor with the big league club. So I think that we're going to be looking at a starter if it is on an expiring deal, but I think an outfielder is more likely. I hate to tell you, but I don't think Reyes is a starter next year. Based on everything we're seeing this year. Yep. I'm, I'm starting to lean towards he ain't going to be a starter. I Let's still go, think he'll get it. Let's go that route. Oh, More oh. likely to be in the Cardinals starting rotation to start next season. Alex Reyes or Johan Oviedo? Johan Oviedo. I'm with you. I, I think it's Johan Oviedo yeah. because he's stretched honestly, out right now. Honestly, I'd like to say neither because I think they're going to be trying to figure out what we just talked about. Some of those younger guys. And I do believe they're going to make a push for Max Scherzer. 
if he's a free agent. Ooh, so I'd like juicy. to I'd like to say neither. Okay, never do that again, please. Um, I, I'd like to say neither, but I would say Oviedo more than likely because it, look, I, I think they're going to try and stretch him out, but. When you're a dominant closer, I just don't know if you're going to be moved from it. I think we're going to have more of a veteran rotation next year than we think. Right now, I do believe Wayno will be back for another year. Wow. Another go-round. I, I do believe that. I believe Wayno will be back. You'll have Flaherty. You'll have Michaelis. And then you've got two spots. Oviedo's one. Hudson. Yeah, you got oh, Hudson. Yeah, that's right. Hudson. Hudson's one. Your one-two punch is and Flaherty then Hudson. Then to me, you're either sticking with an Oviedo, someone in the system, or you go make that push for Max Scherzer. But you got, you got Miles Michaelis, who's your three-starter. Right, I, yep. I mean, he's not going anywhere. Yeah, he's in. The, he's in my list on my starters yeah. next year. I, and as much as I'd love to see Adam Wayne right back, I don't know if he comes back. You're not bringing KK back, so you got those two spots. But look at, I mean, we just talked about it. Zach Thompson's going to be said, okay, what are you? Are you a starter for us, or do you need more time? Same with Matthew Levator. And I do believe they're going to try and stretch out Alex Reyes and Johan Oviedo. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just I think you're think you're going to be stuck in a closer position if you're Alex Reyes because of how good you've been performing. I think you can count Flaherty, Hudson, Michaelis. Those are three guys that are locked in as long as they're healthy as being in your starting rotation next year. So you've got two spots remaining. Those two spots would be a fight between Oviedo, Gant, Thompson, Libertor, Reyes, Woodford, and then potentially whether it be Wayno or Scherzer, a veteran that you would bring bring in. If you bring in a veteran, you're looking at one spot for Oviedo, Gant, Thompson, Libertor, Reyes, Woodford. That's six well, pitchers Gant's a free fighting agent for one this spot. year, right? I don't think so. I think Gant has a couple more years left on his uh, deal. I think so. Yeah, but wow. I, I think the Gant experiment might be over after this season. I think he's a bullpen guy for yeah, you. Yeah, I think he's bullpen. I think Oviedo is going to be the swing man for you, and I think that spot is going to be a competition between Libertor and Thompson. And they'll say one of you guys take it, and whomever doesn't is going to get down Triple A time other guy gets that spot while they have a, a veteran there Gant one more year left on his deal after this season so he's got one more year remaining on his deal I to answer my own question if they don't have Alex Reyes starting next year then what are we doing here like at what point do you have to just allow him to go pitch because he's been really good for them in this relief role but if he ends up just being a reliever for them and them never finding out for themselves if he can start regularly, that feels like it's a real disappointment for me. They would be then setting themselves up to only find out if he can be a starter when he goes somewhere else to start. See, I don't think that. I think if Reyes becomes an elite reliever and is a closer or a setup man for your team for however many years left he has in arbitration and all that, that's that's not a failure to me. I think it is for this team because you have so many other guys at the back end of that bullpen that for him, given his talent and given his upside as a starter, I think that would be a real disappointment for me with this club and with that player. I, I think it just adds to a position of strength. And then with the guys that were told about with the rotation and Thompson and Libertor coming up and Oviedo, who was impressive in his one outing and I think has great stuff to be a good, solid 3-4 starter. I don't think it'd be a disappointment and add Flaherty and Hudson into that rotation mix. Reyes, if you develop Reyes and he becomes an elite reliever, then I think it's, it can be deemed a success. Especially if this is where he's having success because he really never found success as the starter because of injuries came into play. And I mean, if he can sustain over 162 game schedule as a closer, just don't know if they look at it and say, what's the point? Let's keep him there because now we know we have a we have three spots in our bullpen locked in with Gallegos, Hicks and Reyes. By the way, our biggest fear the, the innings situation with him is so far coming to fruition. We are a little more than 10% of the way through the season, and this can change, especially if he gets a spot start here and there. 
He has 6.2 innings so far this year. Six and two-thirds innings is all he's thrown. So if you just want to do the quick math, that would be about 60 innings over What's the course of the season. What's he got saves-wise? Three? He has saves-wise three, op- three saves so far this year. Okay. Three out of three in terms of saves opportunities. And he's only gone multiple innings, what, twice, I believe? He yeah. went two one time in, I think, since he, and then last night he went an inning in a third. I well, believe. last night he went a third of an inning. Oh, yeah, that's right. He just he got the return. one out last that's night. Right. So he's gone multiple innings once so far this year. Yeah, he's a bullpen arm going forward. I hate to say it because I think he should be a starter. That hurts. I think that's the way they're going to go. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Last one here for you guys. Mac Jones goes top five or Justin Fields falls out of the top 10? Which one's more likely to happen in this year's NFL draft? Mac Jones top five or Justin Fields falls out of the top 10? By the way, according to the Vegas odds, Mac Jones no longer the favorite to go number three overall to the 49ers. And you never bet against Vegas. I've learned that. Sometimes on draft stuff you can because there is reactionary to the smokescreen stuff as we are. But in general, absolutely, that's the case. Um, I will say Mac Jones goes top five because even if Justin Fields doesn't get selected third, there's multiple destinations that would take him. And 10th is the Patriots. No, 10th is the the Cowboys. Mm Mm-hmm. Patriots, is Patriots. Patriots would move up if he is sitting there. So, no, yeah, I, I, I would say Mac Jones goes top five. That's more likely. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know if Fields is going to drop out of the top ten, so I will say Mac Jones goes top five. I think that's more likely to happen. So, I was listening to ESPN Radio the other day, guys, and Todd McShay was on, and he said something that I was like, if the NFL really does this, if they do this, I'm going to lose my mind. Here's what he had to say. One of these five quarterbacks start to fall. I think it's, it's going to be Justin Fields from Ohio State. And I think New England at 15, Chicago at 20, Pittsburgh there, you know, later in the first at, um, at, at 24 overall. I think all, all those teams would then be interested. If the NFL allows New England to get their quarterback, if they allow them to end up staying at 15 and Justin Fields falls to them, everybody that every NFL team deserves what's coming. Because Justin Fields is going to be awesome. We all watched it at Ohio State. By the way, Mac Jones, the quarterback at Alabama, former quarterback down there. Justin Fields, the former Ohio State quarterback, who was unbelievable in that game against Clemson in particular. If he really falls out of the top 10 guys and he ends up going 15th overall to the Patriots or they jump up a couple of spots to be able to go get him, the Patriots will once again be one of the best teams in the AFC within the next two years. That's that's definitely going to happen because he will be awesome in that situation for him. He's I would be great there. Especially if he goes to the Patriots and gets a year to work under Cam Newton and gets a year to just spend with Bill Belichick. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they may start another freaking dynasty with this guy. I think it's more likely Justin or Mac Jones goes top five than Justin Fields. I... It's crazy. I cannot believe that this is where we are. I, mean, I think it's really Denver, possibly how do you false. pass up on him if, if he's sitting there? If you're Denver, I don't get it. Drew Locke's a stud. Oh, okay. Drew, Drew Locke was a stud for a game. Last night had the feel of a playoff game. We're going to talk about the biggest moment in that game coming up on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario.
this is highly unorthodox to go five infielders, two outfielders in the eighth inning. Isn't this something? Rolling the dice, Mike Schilt. Fastball outside corner and struck him out. And the Cardinals will go to a traditional defense. All the shenanigans with the positioning, the ball wasn't put in play. So the game tied, it's up to Jan Gomes. And the Nats take the lead on a bases-loaded walk after all of this stuff happening in the eighth inning. That felt like a playoff atmosphere as I was watching yesterday. I know it's the 17th game say, of the season. I forgot what playoffs feel like. It's different. I get it. I don't need you to text in and tell me how I'm overreacting. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. That felt intense. It was the fans being back in the stadiums for the first time in a year. It was the fact that you had an eighth inning that had something I'm not sure I've ever seen that early in the game where they went with the five infielders. Um, You had a pitcher who was clearly struggling, but every pitch felt important. The Cardinals first one run game of the season was yesterday, which is wild to be able to say. The huge strikeout that you heard right there, by the way, all of that audio courtesy of the Nationals radio network and Bally Sports Midwest. Alex, that felt like a really big game last night for the Cardinals. Big game, yes. Playoff moment, eh, maybe not so much. Tanner, do you feel like it felt like a playoff atmosphere? Because, by the way, Danny Mack agreed with me. He said earlier today he believed that it felt kind of like a playoff oh, just atmosphere. Just throwing Danny Mack in my face, aren't you? How can I argue with the voice of the Cardinals? I got to give myself a little gravitas here. <laughs> I, I thought it felt kind of like a playoff game. You don't... You don't roll the dice and go to your laboratory of tricks by getting five infielders in the eighth inning of a game. And it's and it's against a team that, let's be honest, if you don't win your division, you're probably competing for a wild card spot with. So to me, <laughs> no, yeah, but playoff game. Come on. Like, I, I get the atmosphere felt like it, but it didn't feel like a playoff game because like if the they, eighth inning felt like a, a late inning situation in a playoff game, that yeah. that is where it specifically felt that way. And the pitchers going deep, I think that alone kind of gave it a different vibe than most of the games that we've seen so far at, this year. At least for me, it felt it it felt that way because it was the first time we've had that in a long time. Sure. But for me, a playoff moment is a little different because you know that there's the possibility of not being able to come back from this. There's a possibility of being done for good. Of course, Your the season- stakes are different. Everybody would agree with that. That's of just, that's, that's, and Maybe it is for that for you guys, but for me, I'm watching it. I'm like, yeah, this is exciting. We haven't seen this yet this season. We haven't seen this for a couple of years, but I wasn't glued to the moment like I would be in a playoff. See, I was normally the way that I watch games is I'll be doing a little bit of work while the game is on and I'll have the game on like I'm watching, of course, but I'm doing both simultaneously, right? And last night, I set my work aside during that eighth inning to watch every single pitch intently. That that happens rarely that there is it has to rise to the occasion like there are specific moments where that is the case. I'll watch Dylan Carlson at bats because I'm captivated by what he's been able to do so far at such a young age. John Nagowski, every time he's in the game, you guys know I'm locked in on those at bats. Same with Carpenter. Nolan Arenado. It's been that way. I'm locked in on those at bats. (laughs) But last (laughs) night for an entire inning in that eighth inning, it felt like every at bat had the had the potential to feel really, really important with the way that that game was trending. So it had that way to me. And Mike Schilt, after the game, was asked, and I think this kind of leads a little bit of credence to it as well, about the Cardinals responding after a really difficult loss for them. You know, it was the first one that we've had that that, uh, that got away. 
um, so to speak, late, and uh, that's going to happen occasionally. They don't they don't taste real good. You know, this team is super resilient. It'll come back and compete, and we'll be ready to go tomorrow when the bell rings. I am really curious to see how this team responds because the Cardinals, when they've been leading late, have basically won all of their games this year in that situation. They have had zero one-score games up until last night. That was the first time we felt that. And by the way, that definitely played into what I was just talking about, the fact that we hadn't seen a game that was in that specific scenario previously. You got Carlos Martinez on the mound today. This feels like a bit of a um, one-sided matchup when you got Max Scherzer on the other side. Yadier Molina is not in the lineup for the Cardinals today. Matt Carpenter is. Based on what we are watching with both of these teams and the way that the lineups constructed the starting pitcher for the Cardinals doesn't look good on paper, but this is a game they kind of need to win. They need to be able to bounce back after last night and you need to be able to start some momentum, especially with the starting pitching after you've had two really good starts in a row from Jack Flaherty and Adam Wainwright. So it almost feels to me like this has a little bit of an outsized importance relative to what this game is being just kind of one of 162 in mid-April. Well, we say it all the time in other sports, you know, in hockey, it's if you you know, you you can't win the the championship at the beginning of the season, but you can sure as hell lose it because you got to make it into the playoffs. And look, if you miss by a game, then you look back on that one and say, well, you should have went to Reyes earlier or whatever you may be. This one's important for me because you got to start winning series. I mean, you've won one series already this season, and it was against the Marlins, but everything else has been series losses. You've done it to the Nationals. You've done it to the Phillies, the Reds, the Brewers. You've got to start winning series. I'll go back. Mike Schilt said it when he took over as the manager for the Cardinals. He talked about if we want to make the playoffs, we got to win series. And it's kind of in, in hockey, you do increments, right? Like 10 games. It's kind of how you evaluate your team. For baseball, I go by series. And if you're not winning series, well, you're going to struggle to make the playoffs. So that's why I'm putting some importance on this one. Yeah, you got to start building that momentum. Win this series. And like you said, BK, you've gotten the starting pitching this time. The last These last couple series, you haven't gotten it. You've gotten it this time. What you thought was a strength has been a strength in these in this series especially, and they don't have Juan Soto, one of the best players in baseball. So that makes it even more important to win this series. And honestly, I understand that the one series they won was a sweep against the Marlins. Marlins are playing good baseball now. I yeah. don't think you would I don't think you would take two or three from them right now. It's about when you play a team as much as it is who you play them. And the Cardinals got the Marlins at the good time. They should be getting the Washington Nationals at a really good time, given the fact that Juan Soto's out right now. So last night we saw a Cardinals reliever struggle. That means it's time to update our circle of trust. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Tell me who do you trust? It's the Cardinals Circle of Trust with BK and Ferrario. Hey, we got an open for this now? Yeah, man. Hell yeah. Who do you think we are? T-shirt's coming soon. Circle All of right, Trust. All right, so Giovanni Gallegos, we got to talk about his his candidacy for this Circle of Trust. So far, we have inducted Alex Reyes, Giovanni Gallegos, Jordan Hicks, and Tyler the Webb. Spider-Man. Those, those are our four members of the Cardinals bullpen Circle of Trust. Yeah. Do we have to reassess Giovanni Gallegos after in his last three outings now, He's allowed three hits, three earned runs, and four walks. Seven base runners in two and two-thirds innings. Guys, those walks are getting concerning. Don't say it. Those walks are getting concerning. Don't say it. And as Robert De Niro said in Meet the Parents, you break my trust, Greg. There's no getting back in to the circle of trust. Are we really going to quote that? Yeah, that's where this has come from. He's throwing strikes just 55% of the time. And he's getting in these last three he's outings. He's still getting ground balls. I'll give him that. And strikeouts. And strikeouts. 
Do we need to reassess his evaluation of being in the circle of trust? No. I'm going to say no for now. He is He's on that, that line, though, in the circle. And one more outing where we start to see those walks get away from him and bases getting into running scoring position, then I'm going to start getting a little concerned. But for right now, Giovanni, you're still in the circle. Still in the circle for me. He's got He's got the experience over the last two years where he's been one of your best relievers. If he was like a rookie like Alex Reyes, yeah, he probably is out of the circle. But because he's been so good for you over the last two years, it's just a little blimp on the radar. He's going to be fine. Keep games. him in the circle of the trust. That's not a blip on the radar. It's three games. That's a blimp on the radar, no. man. 162. Ryan he's Helsley have... had two games, and we were like, get this guy out of here. I, <laughs> I voted to put Helsley in the circle of trust. No, don't no, do that. you don't do put that. Put him in. No, you don't do that. He doesn't deserve to be in. Giovanni no. Gallegos does not deserve to be in. This is a sacred thing. He's not in. I know, but someone tried to get him in. No, so this is a sacred environment. You can't just enter the circle of trust. If Giovanni Gallegos were, he wouldn't come in today because they're not going to do him back-to-back days. But if we like moved this game to tomorrow and he was available, if he came into the game in a one-run scenario where they're up by one, I would still feel really, really good about him shutting down the Nats lineup. I would too. So for that reason, I still got the trust in him. I still feel when he c- comes into the game that the Cardinals are going to be able to get the job done. Giovanni Gallegos keeps his spot. Are you guys having any sort of concerns about Alex Reyes right now? Is there any is there any fear of keeping Alex Reyes in the circle of trust? No, not for me. I, he even yesterday, I mean, he looked confident, you know, and that was in a jam situation. He he's got something special this year. I don't know what it is, but man, every time he gets into a tight situation where whether he's giving up walks or he's, he's hitting guys or they're 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 barreling up on the ball, he gets out of it. The so walks no. have been the only issue lately. But he had I mean, three walks in his last two appearances prior to last night. Yeah, but again, he's getting through it. And the problem with Giovanni Gallegos was he didn't get through it. Almost did, but then of course he gives up that walk, and then we're talking about the run being scored. So no, Reyes right now is Reyes and Hicks are kind of one two as the leaders of my circle of trust. And if we're being honest, walks have been an issue with just about everybody on <laughs> this team. True. I think the Cardinals are, last I looked, they were like second in walks as a whole team, as a whole pitching, whether that's starters or bullpen. So no, he stays in the circle for me. The walk's a little concerning, but I think he's got the stuff to where he may allow a walk, but he's got the stuff to get out of it. Yeah, if you look at the walk rate so far this season for the relievers, is specifically they are third in baseball right now. Yeah, Highest walk rate in baseball. That's something that definitely needs, needs to get fixed. I think we're going to keep it as is. Reyes, Gallegos, Hicks, Webb. Those are your four. Yep. They continue to be in the circle of trust. Yep. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 10 minutes, we will talk to, I'm going to mispronounce this name, Britt Giroli of The Athletic. She's joining us coming it's up here Italian in about 10 lady. minutes or so. Coming up next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Let's dive into the junk drawer. And guys, yesterday was 420. I know there were probably plenty of people in our listening audience on the Illinois side, of course, where it is legal, that celebrated in ways that they decide to do so. What's 420? 
It is a holiday for some people, Alex, that uh, they like prefer Christmas? to celebrate. Exactly. Very similar, yes. Yeah. Very a lot great. of people buy each other gifts. Like Arbor Day? Also similar. There are, there are like probably Arbor some Day. similarities between Arbor Day and 420. Like President's Day. Little different. Oh, okay. Little different on that one. Um, however, the reason I bring that up is because there is now a company. You guys know I'm always looking to make more money somehow Ooh. on the side. Ooh, this is gonna be a good one. There is a company hiring a full-time marijuana vaporizer tester, and they are offering a forty-two thousand dollar per year salary. Okay. It's a place called vapes.com. Tanner's like, that's more than I make now. <laughs> it is one of the largest global vaporizing websites, and it is a full-time opportunity where you would manage and you would test out all of their vapes. So you would, you can do this potentially remotely, and the owner of this website used to be able to test everything out on his own. Sounds like quite the job. Now he needs somebody else to come in uh, to be able to do this for him. Apparently, they say that free vaporizers and equipment would be provided to you during your employment. You would get a $250 per month expense account. It's remote work. You got flexible hours. Paid $42,000 per year. You get three weeks of paid vacation. Boys. I'm in. So I get $250 to spend a month on top of the $42,000 I make in a year. That is correct. So your expense account, I would imagine. And all it is is just smoking vape. Yep. Testing the vape. Testing the marijuana. Boys, Man. I got to be honest. I think I'm moving to Illinois. This seems like quite the gig. Tanner, you already are a resident of Illinois. Why don't you look into this? We can't, We probably shouldn't push him because I feel like it's in play. Hey, money's money, man. <laughs> Is it? Don't never say never. In all seriousness, this sounds like a wonderful opportunity for somebody in our audience. I need somebody in our audience to let us know if they decide to apply for this. Because if you're single, you could live off. You could live off of two hundred and fifty dollars a month on top of making forty two thousand dollars a year. Hold on, did you just say you could? Oh yeah, you could live off of it. Off of two hundred and fifty dollars a month. Oh yeah, I can confirm. Alex, how much do you think rent is? You don't pay for rent. You live with someone. Like your grandparents? Okay. Like, like your grandparents. grandparents. You could live That's off of $250 you a food? month. You could live off of $250 a month. No. Per month? Yeah. Maybe per paycheck. Alex. No, per month. Alex. I buddy. guarantee you could do it. Is this one of those things where you ask like celebrities how much a, a gallon of milk is and they say $15? Is, is this one of those scenarios no, where you I'm don't totally very, understand? Very. I just, I truly believe if you wanted to, you could live off of $250 a month. 65780 is the air comfort service sex line. Do you believe that people could live off of $250 per month? Now, disclaimer, tax line. if you're living with your grandparents, whomever you're living with, and you're single, that's and an important single, disclaimer, there's no way. And yeah. you work in radio. <laughs> you don't make that much a month. Come on now. You know better than that. Like, $250 What are you paying month? for? What are you paying for? I can tell you on my experience what I'm paying for. I do pay for some car of my own meal, car issues. Uh, what do you need a car for if you're just living yes. at home? What do you, you need a car for? To come to work? <laughs> to your work smoking vape at home. <laughs> to do literally anything. Your, your work is sitting at home and testing vape. Okay, fine. What if I want to go celebrate something? Then you, you, you hit a ride a with somebody. What if I want to go catch a movie? You some watch it at home. I can't tell you, this. you could totally do this. 
You're unbelievable. I'm telling you, you could totally do this. You're unbelievable. All right. Other thing that I wanted to bring up today in the junk drawer. That covers alcohol for a week. Exactly. That's Is that what Jamie I'm Rivers that's texting in? And if you've got this job, somebody makes a really good point. You're going to have the munchies. Like, you're going to be eating a little bit more. I challenge Alex to try this in May. No, you know what? I Not only do I have a wife, I have a baby. That's impossible. Yeah. I one- can do it, though. No, you could if not. I was Tanner, I could totally no, do could this. No, you could not. Yeah, I could. Have you guys seen the news coming out of Philadelphia today? Yeah. Um, so, no. Eagles head coach Nick oh, Sirianni. Oh, I could, yeah, I could yeah, play yeah, for yeah. the team. No. Nick Sirianni is uh, quite the character. Now, this is the guy who his introductory presser did not go particularly well for him in Philadelphia. And you guys know that is a tough media market. If you're not going to wow at your initial press conference things could go south for you quickly well today once again he had a press conference didn't go great for him so he was asked about some of the things that he's talked about with the pre-draft process some of the prospects they've talked to and nick seriani said one of the things that he really likes to do in these zoom interviews is challenge respective players to a rock paper scissors contest he said quote when you compete with somebody that's competitive they're going to go at you no matter what game you're playing. Get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here. I've always wanted to dominate in rock, paper, you, scissors. Know, you know what I can tell from my Super Bowl champion quarterback? He will not lose a game of rock, paper, scissors. If you give him paper over rock, he is going to shank you. <laughs> what? Nick Sirianni must be like on a roll today, too, because he said that he's not naming Jalen Hurts as the number one quarterback. It'll be an open competition. And you know who his competition is? Who is their backup? 36 right year old Joe Flacco. Really? He's not, oh, that's right. Yeah, he's not bad. He's won a Super Bowl, man. Ten yeah. years ago. Yeah. yeah well, Joe Flacco was not this, elite and remains not. elite. Does this guy think that this season is like Madden on easy mode? <laughs> because like that's not how this works. Guys, I don't think this is going to go well for Nick Sirianni. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Nick Sirianni might not work out in Philadelphia. Feels like a bit of a bold take, if I have to say so myself. <laughs> bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. Between him and Dan Campbell, the Lions coach who said uh, that he wants to kneecaps. bite people's kneecaps. Yeah, that's we, my kind of coach. I don't know that either of them are going to be successful. Uh, I'd say Detroit has more success over Philly. I don't think so. They got Goff at quarterback. Yeah, I don't care, though. He's, he's as, a Ram, as a Rams hey, fan, I can confirm. Not someone great. Someone is busting some kneecaps out there if they're losing. I don't know that either of them are going to be successful. This Philly coach thinks that Joe Flacco is going to take over and win him a Super Bowl. But I'm very confident that both are going to be entertaining for us as neutral observers. There is going to be some wild quotes that come out of both of those locker rooms this year. And I am here for it. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, let's talk about a bit about when is the right time to move on from a head coach? Because yesterday there was some news in the NFL we want to get to. When is the right time to decide this is it? We're going to go ahead and move on from head coach. We'll do that coming up in 15 minutes. But coming up next, Britt Giroli is going to join us. She is a senior writer for She previously covered the Nationals out in D.C. Want to get her thoughts on what the future could look like for Max Scherzer and could it include pitching here in St. Louis? Britt Giroli is going to join us to talk about it next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Tanner 
Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll talk about the blue situation with Craig Berube and why he's clearly not the issue. But when is the right time to decide that it's time to move on from your head coach? We'll talk about that coming up in 15 minutes. Clearly not now. When is that time? We'll do that coming up here in just a bit. But right now, let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Happy to be jo- be joined by Britt Giroli. She is a senior MLB writer for The Athletic. She joins us via the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Britt, thank you so much for the time today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing very well. So we wanted to lean on you from your experience in the past working in D.C., covering the Nationals. Of course, when you're in St. Louis, there's always the interest level in today's starter for the Nationals, Max Scherzer. What was it like to watch him on a daily basis? Let's start there. How how did you cover the intensity of Max Scherzer day to day? Oh, man. Um, I had never covered a true ace before coming from Baltimore eight years, and um, it's remarkable. It's not just remarkable, guys, to watch when he pitches every fifth day. It's remarkable from the first time you see him in spring training and he's grunting and swearing and making up counts and hitters at his first February bullpen. So I think what people miss is what makes these guys so different. And I think for Max Scherzer, it's the the competitiveness of him. Even if he doesn't have his best stuff today, and we've seen that in outings already this year, he's still going to find a way to get through five, six innings. He's still going to compete, and he's still going to grunt for the last 15 to 20 pitches. He talked a lot about how important that is in his conditioning, in his off-season work, to be able to finish outings. And I think we can all agree that baseball has kind of an epidemic now getting starters out after the 100-pitch mark. And where Max Scherzer is such a breath of fresh air and a throwback perhaps to, to older baseball times, is he's not coming out at 100 pitches. He's coming out when he is giving you every ounce of what he has on a given night. And I think you really have to respect that. It's something you really miss Uh, when you aren't covering a guy like that, just how much he can impact and and change a game. I don't know about you, Brett, but he sounds like a perfect player for the St. Louis Cardinals moving forward, and I think people in St. Louis are thinking the same way. Do you, and you know this from the perspective of the Washington Nationals, do you see a scenario where Max Scherzer is not a Washington National after this season? Certainly I see a scenario. I mean, he's only signed for one more year, so I think – Uh, It's almost a trick question, right? I mean, nothing is impossible. Uh, I know he's from Missouri, right? He went to Mizzou, met his wife in um, college, um, certainly has some ties to the area, grew up watching the Cardinals. Uh, It seems like uh, that's always been something that's been floated as a potential fit. I think more than anything, Max Scherzer wants to win. I think he'd pitch on Mars if they were in the playoff hunt. I think people miss that about him. So uh, certainly – you know, if the Nationals don't get on track, I think you have to think even sooner than this year. You have to think July. Uh, where would he waive his no-trade clause to? As I said, Max Scherzer just wants to win. Do you think that he would waive it for St. Louis if they were in the hunt at that point, Britt? Just, I, obviously, this is all speculation because we're so early in the process, but do you think that he would potentially waive it to come back home? I think he'd waive it for any team where he had a chance to win another ring. Um, I don't think that's a specific St. Louis question. Like I said, I think he'd pitch on Mars if they were winning the division and it was July and the Nats were out of it. I think he'd like to see the Nats turn things around. Um, keep in mind, people forget the year they won, they started 19-31. and 31, So there's definitely not a lot of panic that the Nationals are out of it, even if people are already speculating about it, because they've seen how quickly this can turn around. So 
Um, yes, I think Max Scherzer wants to win again. Um, yes, I think they could trade him if they're out of it in July, but I'm, I'm not certain they commit to anything here uh, before we even get to July. I think it's really early, uh, like you said, to be speculating on this kind of stuff. Britt, we've already seen, what is it, five games between these two teams, the Cardinals and Nationals, game number six to, uh, today, and of course Max Scherzer's on the mound. Uh, what have you seen in terms of competition from these two teams? Because I think both going into this year were looked at as teams that could be competitive in their divisions. Yeah, I think we've got some two teams that are really inconsistent, right, that are really underperforming. I know for the Cardinals, it seems like one night they will go out and score 10 runs, and then the next night they get shut out. And up until, I think, yesterday, these two teams owned the two worst rotation ERA in all of baseball, which you look at some of the names, the Scherzers or the Strasburgs and Flaherty and Wainwright, and you're like, how can that be? Um, And it's been inconsistent. It's been inability to go deep into games. I think both of these teams have the, the veteran star power. They have the, the group that can certainly get it done. I mean, you look at St. Louis, you got Arenado, you have Yachty. You've got some really young, really good, talented players and guys like Dylan Carlson. And then, of course, you've got Juan Soto and Trey Turner on the other side. I think these two teams are underperforming. I think these two teams can certainly turn it around, can be a lot better. Right now, they're kind of in that weird large middling class of baseball, right? You can name the five worst teams in baseball. You could name the five best teams in baseball. But to me, it's that middle 20 that you're just not really sure about. That a good week could change everything for those middle 20 teams. And that's where I think St. Louis and Washington are right now. We're talking to Bridge Rowley here on 101 ESPN. Britt, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, honestly, that's kind of how we expected things to be, especially in the National League coming into the season. It was basically Dodgers, Padres, then that middle group there. How do you think that that's going to shape out, especially for the Cardinals? That's obviously where the most intrigue is here in St. Louis. Who do you see emerging as maybe the leading contender out of that middle group in the National League? Well... I'll tell you right now, the Brewers are just impressive to watch. Uh, Yes, they have some issues offensively, but that rotation uh, with Woodruff and Burns, I don't know if there's a more dynamic one-two punch in the league. Certainly not right now. Um, I think the way Milwaukee turns out pitching is impressive. They've got the best rotation ERA in baseball right now. Um, You look around the rest of the NL, the Mets are obviously a huge topic of discussion. They're another team that's been carried by their pitching. Um, I think there's a lot of intriguing teams in the NL, you look at the AL and you've had a lot of teams kind of underperform. Teams aren't really sure what's going on. You've got Oakland and Seattle atop the AL West. Um, There's a lot to kind of sift through right now. Uh, But I think when it comes to the Cardinals, they're in a very winnable division. And that's kind of been the MO, right? Like, well, all they really did was add Arenado this winter. Well, one, he's a superstar. And two, they're in a very winnable division. So I think they could Potentially 86, 87 wins could win their division, and I think they're well within striking distance of that. I think the Reds and that offense is going to be really difficult to keep up with, especially because of the way that they haven't really pitched. Um, There's just so much going on, guys, that it's so easy to do exactly what I'm doing, which is Mm overanalyze less than 20 games. Uh, we've got so much more to go. I think it's going to be really interesting to see where the Cardinals end up. With that being said, Britt, when do you look at a team throughout a season and say, okay, this might be who they are? Because there are a lot of underperforming teams, and there are a lot of teams that are overperforming with expectations. So in a season, where do you start to look at it and say, okay, this is who this team is going to be? So good rule of 
awesome that front offices use a lot is Memorial Day. Because it's right around that quarter pole. They look at it and they can say, well, okay, is this team going to be good or not? You know, July is almost too late, right? You need to decide whether you're going to be trading assets or whether you're going to be acquiring players. And I think when you get to Memorial Day, you have a big enough sample size to wonder um, whether these trends are going to continue. So for me, um, after Memorial Day weekend, when you're right into that early June mark, you've got a long enough runway to really look at it. It's no longer a slump, right? It's a, it's a two-month slump, which to me means you're just not hitting. It means you're just um, not a good team right now. So that's when I really start to look at things. I think that June, July is, is absolutely critical when you're assessing these teams of the schedule and what they're going to be able to do in those final two months. She is Britt Giroli. You can find her work over at The Athletic, where she is a national MLB senior writer for The Athletic. Also give her a follower on Twitter as well, at Britt underscore Giroli, G-H-I-R-O-L-I. Britt, thank you so much for the time today. We sincerely appreciate it. Talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks. Hopefully we're going to see a good game here in uh, two hours. Absolutely. We're looking forward to it. Hopefully we get to watch a nice one out of Max Scherzer as well. That is Bridger Rowley joining us here on 101 ESPN. As we've talked with a few, especially over the last week or so, Alex, of the Nationals reporters to people that know the team best over the last couple of weeks, I get the sense that the Scherzer situation, I don't think we're going to have any firm answers on that until July. I don't think we're going to know one way or the other on whether or not they are actually interested in trading him until July. And if I had to predict, I don't think they're going to. I don't think that the Nationals will be interested in doing so for the same reason that they decided not to trade um, Bryce Harper. What was that? Three years ago now. If you remember at the deadline, they were really, really close to doing so. And then they're like, you know what? We can't do it. We just can't trade Bryce Harper. We can't bring ourselves to do it. And then he ended up leaving anyways. I think you're going to see something similar this year with Scherzer where they think about it, they consider it, you'll read all year long about the possibility, and then they decide to keep him. And then if he leaves, I think it'll be next offseason, not at the deadline. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think you'll know by that deadline too because I think they'll try and get an extension worked out. Otherwise, you're not going to go into free agency where you don't get anything back because you know you are still, if you're the Nationals looking at it, you got this this championship window that's open because a young Juan Soto who is cost-effective on top of the pitching staff that you have. So I think it either gets done or you see him moved because you're not going to just lose Max Scherzer. See, I don't think, I, I would go the other way. I think if he, even if he doesn't have any extension done at the deadline, I think they still keep him because that's the route that they went with Bryce Harper. Yeah, but I also think Max Scherzer comes to it and says, well, what are you doing to stay competitive? And then he leaves in the offseason. You're, you're going to let that walk for nothing? Yeah, that, the that's Nationals, where I yeah. am. I, I would not let Scherzer. If, if I, I know just, Scherzer's not going to re-sign, I'm not letting him walk yeah, for nothing. I, I don't think that they will know then that he is, re, he is walking. I think that they look at it as the same way that they did with Harper. It's not the best business way to do things. I, I don't agree with this way of going about it. But I think the Nationals, much like the Cardinals, view that legacy thing and they think it matters. And they want to have the opportunity to go into the offseason knowing so far Scherzer's going into the Hall of Fame with that W on him. But I think the biggest difference between this and the Harper scenario was you knew you had Juan Soto behind him. And you can argue that you have Corbin and you have Strasburg behind him, but those guys are those guys aren't homegrown town. Strasburg is, but they don't do you have someone else that's coming up to become that third big name starter? Probably not. But I, 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 it's a really tough situation for them, obviously, and I think they would like to re-sign Scherzer, but 
eventually it goes into Scherzer's hands. Does he want to be back with them? I think if the if you ask the Nationals what their plan is, they would probably tell you, let's play this thing out, and then we believe that we're going to have an opportunity to re-sign Scherzer at the, at the end of the season, regardless of what happens this year. And then Scherzer has to decide, am I coming back? Am I going to go elsewhere? And I think he's going to get a better offer to play for a team that he views as a better contender than the Nationals. Yeah, I, I get that, and, and I maybe agree. It's, it's, not an, it's not a smart way to go about business, but it might be the way the Nationals are viewing it. If I'm running that team, though, I have a good gauge around that time if I feel like I can compete for a World Series. And if I can't, and I don't have a good feel that Scherzer's coming back, I'm trying to see if I can get at least something back because he's will warrant some type of return that you can continue to push for a, for a championship with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's one sixteen. your time check brought to you by Clarkson jewelers and officially licensed Rolex jeweler coming up next. There's some NFL draft news that I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like this regarding one of the top quarterback prospects. We'll get into that on the other side. And has Bill Belichick changed the way that we evaluate coaches forever? Talk about it all on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Breaking news in the NFL that I think we should get to. According to Ian Rappaport, Justin Fields, the former Ohio State quarterback and consensus top 10 quarterback in the or top 10 pick this year in the NFL draft. It has been confirmed to NFL teams that Justin Fields during the pre-draft process confirmed he is managing epilepsy a neurological disorder that can cause seizures. That's according to him, Ian Rappaport, and Tom Pelissero of NFL Network. Quote, it has not affected football, and doctors believe that he will outgrow this condition as other family members of his have. They add that Justin Fields has been taking his medication, and he, he has not had any issues recently. It is possible he may have already outgrown the issue. Tom Pelissero of NFL Network adding that Justin Fields would not be the first NFL player to excel while managing epilepsy. Pro Football Hall of Fame guard Alan Fanica, formerly of the Steelers, also took medication to control his seizures throughout his career. Fields was diagnosed years ago, and as long as he's taking the medication, it sounds like he has had no issues, end quote. Well, this would explain some of the talk of Justin Fields potentially dropping in the draft. Now, that is not to suggest that he can't go on to have a long and successful NFL career. But the NFL draft is all about managing risk. So when a player comes in, for example, this is different, but a guy like Landon Dickerson, who was the former Alabama center, he had a bunch of injury concerns in his career. He's one of the best players in this year's draft. One of the 10 best players probably in the draft. But he's been hurt basically at the end of every single season in his college career. Do you take that guy in the top 10? Well, probably not because there's a really good chance that he's going to continue getting hurt in the future. So you got to manage, okay, where do we take him then? Guys with character concerns that have had off-field issues in the past. You don't want to take a guy that's going to get busted for marijuana in his first year and he ends up going... Uh, He gets suspended or whatever, right? You don't want to have an issue that pops up with these players, especially if you're taking them early in the draft and you're investing so much in them. It's different in this situation in that it is epilepsy that he's dealing with. But if you're an NFL team and you're investing millions of dollars and the future of your franchise into this specific position in particular, this makes a lot more sense to me as being the knock, quote unquote, against him for drafting him later 
than some of the other stuff that we've heard about Justin Fields. The stuff where he doesn't like go off of his progressions as often or he's not the first guy in and the last guy out like that stuff missed me with all of that. This makes a little bit more sense to me, Alex. Frankly, I'm surprised this is the first time we're hearing about it because this is something that he's dealt with for so long. And like, how have we not talked about how, you know, this collegiate athlete is overcoming epilepsy and performing at the highest level. Um, And, you know, now with NFL teams, I understand that that perspective of it. But if it's never hindered him, I don't know how you can drop him out of your rankings or move him down because and I understand risk management you don't want to take the chance it is the part that gets me and maybe this is on me for not being knowledgeable enough on it I didn't know epilepsy was something you could overcome I thought epilepsy was something that you kind of deal with and you might still have to deal with it no matter what but to take medicine and find ways to battle that and overcome that and still perform at the highest level that's the part that's impressive for me so I, I get it. I don't think it should be something that drops him down in a draft because, again, he's performed at the highest level and has been one of the best quarterbacks at the highest level. Yeah, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Guy's still not a real issue to me. He has His epilepsy is controlled. He's taking his medicine. Shouldn't be a problem. Agreed. And I'm not a doctor, and so I don't have a full understanding of what is taking place for Justin Fields. I have no idea. All I'm saying is that if I'm an NFL team – and I'm viewing this and I hear about something such as this, and they know a whole lot about the medical backgrounds that we don't from the outside looking in. This one is is a little different to me in that what if something did take place? What if an episode did occur and it does affect his future playing football for me? Now, any player could go out there and they tear their ACL. There's a risk of that happening for anybody by just playing a really, really physical sport. But Fields has an underlying condition that does make him more susceptible to something that could be problematic for him uh, in his future playing the sport that you're paying him millions of dollars to play, right? So it does add something else to the evaluation that we didn't know about previously that I think if I'm a football team, that's something I would at least have to consider. Yeah. And if I'm weighing, if I it's a tiebreaker for me. I'll put it that way, right? If I think him and Mac Jones, and I don't feel this way, but maybe an NFL team does. I think they're similar in terms of the way that they're going to play in the NFL. And Mac Jones is perfectly healthy, doesn't have any of these issues, not issues, anything medically that would be a quote unquote red flag for an NFL team. And Justin Fields, you now know, has epilepsy that is controlled. He's taking his medicine for it and he has had no issues in the past. If you're an NFL team, quote, you know, quote Hippa, unquote, I mean, how, yeah, I get that. But I mean, how many quote unquote mock drafts have we gone through and it hasn't been addressed? And again, yeah, the HIPAA things comes into form with this. If he doesn't want it out, then it, that's how it wouldn't get out. And then finally, he just decides that you're at this point where it comes out with yeah. it. But yeah, I mean, you know, the drafts are so interesting, especially with football, because those guys are expected to perform immediately. And if you don't, then you're quote unquote a bust. I mean, look, people were talking about Alex Smith being a bust as a former number one overall pick. So um, it could drop him down, but that's the part that I think will be intriguing because the team that takes a chance on him, you know, we talked last week about Trevor Lawrence's comments of, oh, we well, you know not an internal drive. This might be something where this, uh, th- if I'm a team, I'm looking at this and saying, boy, this might be the guy that's going to take this and run with this as a, another kind of challenge and battle to overcome. Yeah. And from the five, seven, three, six, five, seven, eight, oh, is the air comfort service tax line. If he's your best chance to win at quarterback, why wouldn't you take him? I agree, but I'm on the outside looking in. 
I would take Justin Fields because I've watched him play football. And if all of my doctors tell me, hey, this shouldn't be an issue for him. Well, then, yeah, I'm taking the guy that's going to help me win football games. But I'm also in that position is is a part of this as well. I'm also not a general manager whose future is tied to whether or not this guy works out. Yeah. And if something were to happen and it sets my franchise back because I'm building around that guy, it sets my franchise back a few years. And now I'm fired as a result because I'm the guy that took him and took the chance and it didn't work out for us. Well, that's where things become more difficult. So, for example, earlier today, we talked about the possibility of the Patriots taking Justin Fields. Well, who's their general manager? It's technically Bill Belichick, and that guy has the ultimate job security. He ain't getting fired. He's (laughs) going to be there as long as he wants to. So somebody like Belichick could absolutely go make a move like this, and it it, it wouldn't be an issue for him. He'd be fine. I think the Patriots make a ton of sense here, man. I I keep coming back to it, and I think he would be awesome for them. I think they would take him. He would start day one. He would be an instant top 20 quarterback in the league at worst. And I think you would see the Patriots back into the playoffs by year two of him being a starter for them. Yeah, I, I, I think that would be a perfect match, in my opinion, of a team that takes Justin Fields is Bill Belichick, because I think somebody like that taking on a, a kid who seemed very composed throughout his college career, it seems like a match made in heaven who can turn that guy into a superstar. I'm really interested to see how this uh, ends up affecting him on draft night. I think the fact that it is out tells me that it will be something that knocks him down boards because so? I don't know why else this had to be coming from his side because there's not teams that are going to be putting this out there. There's no reason to do so. I'm guessing this came from his agent and I'm guessing the reason that it came out is because he's probably going to fall further than people expect on draft night. And he doesn't want something getting out there that is like, hey, there's some character concerns or all of this other nonsense that ends up happening so often. He it's going to be fine. He's dealt with this in the past. It's not going to be something that we believe is going to be a problem for him in the future. I I bet he falls a little further than we were expecting because of this. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, let's talk to the voice of the blues, Chris Kerber. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. Right now, let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to talk with our friend and the voice of the blues, Chris Kerber, here on 101 ESPN. Curbs, what's going on, man? Hi, fellas. How are you today? Doing all right. So the Blues right now find themselves technically a game back of the Coyotes, but they are, by points percentage, the fourth best team in the West so far this season. Curbs, they control their own destiny at this point. What do you? How do you look at the rest of the season from the Blues' perspective? Well, I think just just like that, Brandon. I'm you're, you're you put yourself in a position to control your own destiny. The goal is the playoffs. Get in, and so you know what, what's it going to take? It's going to take some extraordinary hockey. It's going to take some attention to detail. Um, it, it's going to take some guys staying healthy for the rest of the year. You know, but. But you you put yourself in a position to at least you know give yourself a chance and you know and maybe in the end that's not quite where you thought you'd be at the beginning of this season but I I just truly think that too many injuries came too fast and too heavy that, that they find themselves in this spot so put all that together I, I still think you have to have a real positive vibe right now with the way things could go I mean and look I, I 
I still think they're going to get the 56 games in, so I'm not sure the points percentage is going to really matter. But as we're seeing with the way some of this COVID stuff is still impacting teams around the league, you never truly know. So I guess that's something to still keep an eye on. Well, and that's something that uh, Joe and I are going to talk about tonight, Curbs, on This Week in Hockey, because I- I'm, I'm kind of curious that last week of the season, one, it seems to be very important for the Blues schedules. If you look at them taking on the Kings, Minnesota, and then if they play against Colorado, but it also comes down to because they have those games in hand on Arizona, could the NHL get to the point like what we saw with baseball last season and say, I don't know if they need to play this because the Blues are in a playoff spot. Well, if you look at right now sitting, what, almost 15 points behind Minnesota, yeah. well, you know, because they continue to pick up points while you've been up, right? I Look, I, I do. I, I think if you get to the point, if you get to the point where it doesn't look like the standings are going to be adjusted by playing those games, then I'm not sure that there's a need to play them if it helps you keep your season on track and on schedule. However, because of what's going on with the Vancouver Canucks, it looks like the Vancouver Canucks are playing all the way up to May 19th. You know, that's about a week later than the Blues have their game scheduled. So, you know, will they start the the playoffs in the United States a little bit earlier than they start the Canadian division once possibly? Who knows, to be honest with you, if those last four games for the Vancouver Canucks are even going to be necessary, especially if several of them are against the Calgary Flames. Right. And maybe the league just comes uh, up with a way to, you know, figure out how they're going to do the draft order with those teams that missed. I think all of that is still very much on the table, Alex. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess why play them if it's not necessary right now, the way it looks like things, it looks like it's going to be pretty necessary. The voice of the blues, Chris Kerber, joining us here on 101 ESPN curbs. One thing that's been an issue for the blues of late and really all season is the second period. They've had that blow up period. I went back to, and looked into it in their, in their last 10 games, they have been outscored 16 to five in the second period curbs. Have you noticed anything that is kind of a theme through those? Is there something that has gone wrong specifically? What, what are you noticing with those second period issues for the blues? Yeah, you know what? I think uh, I think sometimes, depending on the competition, Brandon. You know, I, I wonder if like maybe the speed of Colorado has been an issue for that. You, you've the second periods are, are interesting periods because you've got to really have you know good puck possession. I, I think and be able to put and, and that also means not just holding it on your stick, but it means putting the puck in, in the right spots. And and in doing so, you allow yourself to make cohesive line changes. And if you're you're controlling the play if you're just kind of you send one four check in or maybe the forwards are going in but now the defense are trying to make a change right and then they don't make the change quickly enough and it's not clean enough and the other team comes out now the forwards are kind of chasing back now the forwards have to change and I guess if there's anything I'd notice and this is not going into too much depth with it but you know it's it's staggered line changes for the blues that have not allowed them to keep a whole lot of flow going in the game I that that might be part of it um you know, the, the, the penalty kill, uh, I think uh, if you look at those numbers, I think it's going to be kind of average in that area too. So part of it is also, I think, just attention to detail like we talked about in that first answer. I mean, it, you, you've got to have that extra attention to detail in that second period because of that long line change because you could, you can get stuck out there on the ice for a, or a, for a little bit longer. And if you're not making the clean plays, you make it harder on everybody else. And the, the one that uh, might have been the – Try to think off the top of my head. It was a Colorado game, but I, but I remember the play itself where the the puck was coming out. The forwards went for the line change. O'Reilly Perron and, and uh, I think it might have been Sammy Blay at this point came on the ice. 
they were just trying to get back into coverage and it was too late for the rush from the other team and the puck was in the back of the net. I mean, so those are the kind of things where if you're not finding offensive zone time in the second period, it is really, really, really hard to play in period two because of that long change. Uh, I tell you, Curbs, the one thing that I'm kind of interested to see down the stretch of hockey, of course, playoffs is the initial uh, goal here, but also I would imagine from Craig Bruby and the coaching side, you know, you want to see some a little more from those depth players too, kind of like a, a Sammy Blay, a Zach Sanford, a Mackenzie McEachern who could be getting back into the lineup. I mean, these are guys who are trying to establish everyday roles for him. Also a Jake Wallman. It's kind of an interesting storyline going into this final stretch for the blues it is I, i'm not sure that I, i'm not sure that you keep looking for it at this point you know you're 40 games in uh and, and i think you know what you're getting from those guys so um i i think at this point if, in the final 13 games if you're going to look at it you, you're hanging your hat on your top players yeah you're hanging your hand on the on the guys that you know can do it you know have gotten it done you've got to hang your hat uh, fair or unfair because of injury or time missed or whatever, it's got to be hung on you know more production from Jaden Schwartz. You've got to have some game changing goals from Vladimir Tarasenko. You know you, you're going to need some chipping in more uh, for, from Braden Shen at least on the goal scoring side of it. Uh, you know defensively, you've got to make sure that you're not having mistakes from your top three of Pareko, Krug, and Falk, and and, you, and then you've got to make sure that you're just getting really really good goaltending. You know, and not the sporadic goaltending. You know, where where it, it looks like it's been that way for the Blues. So to me, I I, I don't know. I, I think we've, I think you've seen enough from those depth guys, right, to know at least what to expect. Now you need the guys to carry you over the top. And I'm like, I'm kind of fascinated on how you look at this, right? So if you look at the lines that the Blues have rushed with in the last couple of practice, okay, Tyler Bozak has been in between Jaden Schwartz and Vladimir Tarasenko. Is that moving Vladimir Tarasenko and Jaden Schwartz down to the third line, or is that moving Tyler Bozak up to the top line? Yeah, because you got Shen playing. You know, I mean, it's yeah. kind of a fun way. I guess I guess we're going to find out how that line is used and the total amount of ice time to, to determine that. You know, but it's a, I was just kind of looking at that today going, all right, here's a twisted way of looking at this. <laughs> Well, but but it also, I mean, it puts into the situation, too, where guys perform. Like, do you want to be the second or do you want to be the third line? Because they're putting Shen and Kairou back together. Well, it and Jordan Cairo only has goals in one of the games since Vladimir Tarasenko returned, you know, and yeah, part of it is on him be, you know, to just find a way to be productive no matter where you are in the lineup. The other part is, is as a young guy, he was finding a way to be successful and let's put him back with some people that had, had made him successful. So again, when you, when you're struggling and you're a coaching staff, just trying to find ways, you're, you're going to just try to move things around a little bit to try and find some things uh, to work. But as we, as we've seen, those those lines, the way we're looking them, halfway through the first period, that could all be jumbled up depending on the flow of tomorrow night's game. Final question that I've got for you, Curbs. There's, I want to get out of the front end of this question. I do not believe Craig Berube is even a little bit of a problem for this team. However, um, we, we hear from the listeners all the time, and some of them have brought up the idea of a coaching change and that that is the issue for the Blues. I wanted to ask you, Curbs, you get to see things. You get to talk to Baruby in a way that a lot of fans cannot. What is it about Baruby that you believe makes him uniquely qualified for this specific job? Why is Craig Baruby the right man for this job? Not just now, but for the future as well. Because I believe that to be true, but I know that you have a, a relationship with him that some of our audience just doesn't. Well, first is I thank those listeners for listening and then tell them they're nuts. Um, <laughs> we do it all right, the time. But, Don't worry, uh, Yeah. Yeah, I know, which is good. That's, that's a good policy. Um, 
listen, this is uh, why is he uniquely qualified for the job? Uh, look at 2019, and he turned around a team that was really well built and found a way to get him going. Last season, prior to the pause, you know, prior to the pause, you were in first place in the Western Conference. First place in the Western Conference, right? I mean, that's that's not a small thing. All right, this bubble, this this pandemic, uh, the things it it is it has changed this team. In the process, you end up losing some players, some more players. You've got Petrangelo gone. You've got Steen and 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 Sunquist that are out for the year, right? You had you've missed ten guys, including Tarasenko and Steen, that have missed more than a month of hockey this season. You know, you're not getting continued growth from from the middle guys, as Alex was just talking about. That's not coaching. I think that's that's just some progression. I think when you look at what Craig Berube has done with Jordan Cairo, you look at the support he gave Jordan Cairo through a bit of a, a tough year last year and the way Jordan came onto the scene this year, that tells you something. I think you look at the way Craig Berube handles certain situations with these younger guys and the coaching that he does with them. Uh, what he's done with Jake Wallman. You know, Jake Wallman had that horrible mistake you know, at the blue line, the puck goes in the net. If you're playing for John Tortorella, you're sitting on the end of the bench the rest of the game. He doesn't miss a shift. They put him back out there. They continue to coach him is what Mike Van Ryan did. You know, and Jake Wallman has played some really solid hockey for the Blues. So I, I think you look at those things as a continued reason why you have the right coach and the right coaching staff for this team. I think there are other ancillary and then sometimes uncontrollable aspects of this group that uh, – that are biting you in the butt right now with this season, and yet go back to our very first question, and yet you still control your own destiny to make the playoffs. So I think um, I think we're in some really good hands still with the coaching staff that we have without a shred of doubt, and I mean, I don't even entertain those thoughts, to be honest with you. Yeah, I know everybody in this room agrees with you on that, Curbs. He's the voice of the but Blues. You know, what, you know what, Brandon, in all fairness, though, I will say, like, like I can understand why, why why fans or somebody would look at it. I mean, when things don't go as expected, it's fair to examine every sure. aspect of things, but... Once you ask, once like if you're a fan, once once that question gets asked, really look at it unemotionally, and I think you're going to go, yeah, okay, I think we're okay. He's the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber. You'll hear him tomorrow night. Hopefully, I believe it sounds like Craig Berube is confident that game will be played. Blues versus Avalanche will have pregame coverage on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN tomorrow at six o'clock. Kerbs, always appreciate it, man. Enjoy the game tomorrow. We'll talk with you again soon. All right, guys, have an awesome day. Talk you to you later. It's Chris Kerber on 101 ESPN. We'll cross things over with the fast lane coming up next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Time now for the crossover. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Close to home or close to work. For quality tires and expert auto service, you can always count on Dobbs. And I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check out the podcast page presented by I Promise. We had a great interview earlier today with Jason Stark, one of the best baseball writers for my money in the business. Crossing things over now with BT. BT, we talked with Jason Starks about Corbin Burns, who has... I was just talking to the guys in the office. He's my favorite player to watch. Yeah, what the hell happened? strikeouts, zero walks. Let's see what happened. Let's see what happened. Corbin Burns, and I'm interested to hear what Jason Stark had to say about him. Here's what I see with with him, because he wasn't a high draft pick, and he didn't come from like a big-time school. 
Corbin Burns was made. He was developed. They got him in their pitching lab over there. Like a machine? Yes, like a machine. Basically, Ivan Drago. Like, that's what what Corbin Burns is. Now, I know for Drago, it didn't work out at the end. But but I don't see see Rocky coming for Corbin Burns at this point. But, like, he's built himself into that pitcher. And he took the bigger slider that he had and turned it into that 97-mile-an-hour cutter now. There's That's, like, by the way, what Jason Stark said. Basically, he, he has Mariano Rivera's cutter now. It's it's ridiculous yeah. oh, like what, cool. what he is doing with the baseball. But it's not just that. He's also throwing 91-mile-an-hour change-ups that are dropping three feet. Like, he... And, and I, I like watching... First of all, I, I love seeing, like, pitchers, how quick their arms are. Watch his delivery. Watch Corbin Burns, and you see, like, the, the setup itself is slow, 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 and then, boom! It's The arm is just rocket fast, and there's a violence a, at the end of it that is uh, majestic. What does that do for a hitter, though? Because, like, you're expecting, I guess, a slower delivery, right? If you're starting that direction. Remember John Gant's delivery mm-hmm. that they worked on in spring training because he had that little stutter step? Does that slow process then to the fast release, does that mess up hitters? I think, well, hitting's timing anyhow, so uh, maybe the first time you see it, you see the slow, slow, slow. But, like, a lot of times, that's something that if I'm doing a pitching lesson for a kid, a lot of times, like, kids want to rush into their delivery and do everything fast. Nothing matters until you throw the baseball. So why be in a rush until that part, right? Yeah. Like, like, the fast arm. Uh, but maybe the first couple times you see him, maybe that, that does trick you a little bit. But he's a tough out anyhow. I mean, yeah. you look at what he's doing. 40 punch outs, no walks. Uh, he is a stud. Woodruff is really good. Yeah. Uh, Freddie Peralta can strike out the world. I think Hauser is good as well. And then you got Brett Anderson over there, who is just the the lefty, been around for a long time. Sinker ball gets him outs quick. The the, the so what you're saying Brewers is they'll be trouble. an easy team. Yeah, they're trouble. They'll be an easy team. And they're to beat up really on. good defensively when healthy for sure. For they're sure. they're not healthy right now, but they're really good defensively. They when are healthy. well, and that was the thing last year. They weren't good defensively, but Lorenzo Cain had opted out. Yep. They didn't have Colton Wong at, at that Jackie point. Bradley Jr. For sure, these yeah. things all add up. So, uh, what else did Jason Stark have to say? I, I really enjoy his work. So he talked a lot. We talked with him about how Nolan Arnato has lived up to every expectation, and we talked about the rule changes in the Atlantic League. And he basically said one thing that he's really been pushing for over the years is this double hook idea right so you get the dh to start out the game but whenever you take out your starting pitcher you lose the ability to have that dh so then it becomes national league rules for the late innings and what he's hoping is that that will incentivize teams to keep their starter in later into the game and he said adam wainwright is apparently a huge proponent of this rule i'm guessing compared to the regular dh is what he would be a proponent of but says Wayno is one of the guys that he's talked to about it that really seems to be enjoying this I idea. remember reading a piece that he did on this, and this was months ago, and he had Adam Wainwright quoted in it. And look, I like the idea of it because I know what the end game is going to be. Right. I know it's going to look like the DH heading into the National League, and it'll likely end up being there forever. But I wouldn't mind like the little baby step in between because I do think that it's one of baseball's biggest issues right now is that there is little value in starting pitching. Like, we get a guy that goes out there and goes five innings. Like, all right, it's no big deal because I got bullpen that goes six, seven, eight, nine, bing, bang, boom. <laughs> all throwing takes, 100. It, but all throwing 100, but also all throwing off speed that they don't throw for strikes. And it's 2-1 counts. It's 3-1. It's 3-2. takes forever. So to, to be able to put a little bit more on the starting pitchers again and put a little more pressure on the managers to keep them out there, I love the idea. I like it. 
I like it for a intermediary between the two. Like if you had to, hey, how do we get the center place between guys that really want the DH and guys that are just super opposed to the DH? This seems to be the midpoint for those two things. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. close to it as you can. I do think, though, that the the group of guys that really opposes the DH is few and far between. I think so, It's too. really not there because they all know, even if you are against— Adam Wainwright's a great example of a guy that likes to hit, loves baseball this, the way that it is, but he also realizes that for the union standpoint, and he is a big union guy, that this is better for us. BT, another high paid what's coming up on the fast lane today, my man? All kinds of good stuff. Look, we're, we're going to break down the Cardinals, break down the Blues. Uh, Barrett Jackman's going to join us at nice. two thirty. Going to you know get inside the room a little bit. Tell go. us what's going on the uh, with the Blues. We'll have Joey Vitale uh, with us as well. We're going to break it all down today. Looking forward to that. Coming up from two to six, we'll be back tomorrow at eleven, right here on one hundred and one ESPN. Make sure you mark that one down. Size matters. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, powered by I Promise.